Well, is it still Lunar New Year? I don't know. There's balloons everywhere. So I think it's yeah. still a celebration. You know what I'm saying? So I don't um, think they're the same balloons, Jacob. All right, folks, it's February. So for this episode of the podcast, we get back to talking about the Cyber AB Town Hall for January, which is heavily focused on rulemaking. There were a couple of awesome questions that were submitted during the town hall. Jason and I go into a deeper discussion on. We also had some awesome questions submitted from podcast viewers that we discuss, bringing back some older topics that we talked about in previous podcasts and uh, going through some of the ideas that got brought up in the YouTube comments. Uh, There was a CISA alert that hits a little close to home because it is relevant to the tools and software used by managed service providers. So yet another CISA alert in a long line of CISA alerts talking about the risk presented by MSPs as threat vectors just based off of the fact that they exist in the business model that they do. There were a couple of interesting DOD uh, reports that came out that at first glance seemed to be not related to CMMC at all, but kind of round out some of the uh, larger discussions around CMMC, the viability of DOD providing cloud enclaves, uh, how much uh, time, money, resourcing, and so on and so forth the DOD actually might have to be able to dedicate to alleviating burdens in the DIB when it comes to cybersecurity requirements. Uh, There were some interesting uh, reports that came out about DIB surge capacity in the event of escalating conflicts between between Russia and Ukraine, China and the United States, uh, with some very interesting implications for the status and stature of the industrial base. Definitely some interesting details to round out your overall contextual understanding of what's going on in American industrial policy and the impacts that they might have on regulatory requirements for companies doing business in the DIB. And then finally, keeping with that theme, there have been uh, some events going on in the larger overall regulatory big picture, if you will, of which CMMC and NIST 171 and the CUI program are just uh, pieces of the overall sort of shift that we're seeing in the regulatory approach of the United States government. So we go into a couple of developments that people may find interesting, whether you're a practitioner or you are someone in the industrial base that may be subject to some of the changes that are coming up uh, that are not uh, necessarily CMMC related directly. You may find them interesting. Uh, If you do, let us know in the comments below. Uh, We always try to include information that is both directly related to CMMC and that is um, uh, amplifying information around CMMC to uh, sort of help bring light to extra information that mm, people might find useful. So thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, like and subscribe. Let us know what you think. But yeah. All right, man. It's uh, it's February, right? It is February, right? It, it is, is February. Yeah, it is February already. And what a year it's been so far as we record this. Um, but this episode is talking about everything that happened in January. And uh, we'll try to lead into some of the big developments that we think are going to come out um, later this month, which I think there's going to be 
it's going to be quite the year if uh, if the first month of the year is any indication, right? Yeah, if January kicks <laughs> off any, or if the rest of the year is anything like January, like strap in and get ready. Like it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so like always, right, uh, we'll always kick off about the Cyber AB Town Hall. So we're back on schedule. We didn't have one at the end of the year because of holidays, but we had their uh, January Town Hall a few days ago. And um, yeah, we'll get into the takeaways, but it was a little unusual because the majority of the Town Hall was a uh, friend of the show, uh, CMMC legend, father of CMMC. Pops. Uh, Bob Met- Bob Metzger and uh, and Bob was in there talking about the rulemaking situation for I don't know it was probably 40, 40, 40 or more minutes. So if you're curious about rulemaking, definitely um, watch the video for the town hall that we'll link to. We also have our own forty minute long video explaining rulemaking. There's a blog post if you don't want to sit through the forty minutes. There's a clip that uh, gets straight to the point if you don't need all the background information. Uh, we'll link to that as well. We will not belabor the rulemaking situation. All the details are in those two videos. So I think we'll direct people to those. That was the majority of uh, of the town hall. But there was a couple other details I think that we can we can get into, right? Yeah. So um, in addition to obviously um, Bob Metzger going and discussing rulemaking, like we they talked about the um, comments that were submitted from the ecosystem for the um, CMMC assessment process guide. Um, 540 yeah, of them is, total. And okay. And just to clarify, right? So the rulemaking process is known as notice and comment rulemaking, but the comments submitted on the CAP, the CMMC assessment process guide, not part of rulemaking. This was the draft CAP document published by the AB. They asked for people to submit comments. And they've published the spreadsheet of all of those comments, but this is separate from rulemaking. This is just an AB cap thing. So just to clarify, it's not an official rulemaking event. Right. And so obviously, you know, with it being a draft, um, they ask for feedback from the people that are going to be using it the most. And surprisingly, 540 total comments submitted. And then even more surprisingly, that's a lot of comments. When they published them, they didn't admit any. So, like, if it was, well, if it was submitted to them, yeah, that's – yeah. Um, and then what they did was they organized them in a spreadsheet, gave them ID types, event types, uh, the submitting, you know, um, whoever submitted it. And so they could be sorted and you could look through see who put, the, you know, put things in and comments in for, for the cap. And then um, obviously the, the next steps are the, the AB is going to take and review all 540 of those comments. And then um, I guess – recruit help from the CMMC ecosystem to adjudicate them? Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, you're getting feedback from industry, right? So that's like, what, that's you, what want, you want, right? I yeah, mean, that's yeah, what you want. Is, is, I mean, you want, you want them to publish a draft. I mean, honestly, uh, this is the irony with rulemaking is that as the rulemaking process has evolved over, you know, decades and decades and decades, um, all of the regulatory red tape and bureaucracy that happens before the rule is published tries to get the rule as close to finished as possible. That way the public has a better and better idea of what they're commenting on. Problem is, is that you don't get to put your comments into the rule until the government feels like it's done. And so it sort of removes the the leverage of public comments influence over changing the rule is something that Bob Metzger brought up 
in his rulemaking segment in the town hall was even if the CMMC rule is proposed, which our video and, and Bob's explanation goes into great detail, the difference between the possible scenarios, even if it's proposed, you know, don't be fooled by the term proposed rule. That does not mean that it is uh, any more likely to change from its published form. It's just a function of the fact that the DOD has to respond to comments first. Doesn't necessarily mean that they have to make the changes by the comments. But in this situation, the AB put out the draft, right, in a, a what is arguably not its finished form. They got a ton of comments, and then now they're going to solicit help from the ecosystem, go through those comments, and then I guess I assume publish uh, an updated version, which is great. That's how the system's supposed to work. Yeah, it's going to obviously allow them to create a document that can be more effectively leveraged by the ecosystem to perform, you know, 540. 540 comments is a lot of comments. The 2020 CMMC rule, the assessment rule that we talk about in the video, got 850 comments. So that received almost as many comments as the rule did. And I remember back in 2021, Jesse Salazar, who was then running the show, testified in front of, let me see if I get this right, testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee Subcommittee on Cybersecurity. And he said hmm. that out of the 850 comments that were submitted on the rule, only half of them were relevant to the CMMC program rule itself. So if you talk about relevant comments, which I have not gone through the spreadsheet, I'm sure there's some amount of those comments that are irrelevant, but uh, that's a significant amount of comments. That's good. That's great. Yeah, it is. And can we just talk for a minute about that subcommittee name? It sounds like a, a Michael Scott 5K off of the office. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the committee. Oh, yeah. The committee. The subcommittee of the even, committee that committees the committee. Like The it, even <laughs> better part is when you try to figure out the uh, structure of undersecretaries and assistant undersecretaries and deputy assistant undersecretaries. There, there is a structure and an order. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But sometimes when... Um, somebody who works for somebody who works for somebody goes to one of these committees, they have to introduce them and they're the assistant deputy undersecretary to the blah, 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 blah on the committee to do blah, 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 task force, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they get very, very long. So it's like, hi, this is my sister's cousin's wife's husband's. Right. Best friend. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, it, gets, it definitely gets involved. So, but um, yeah, so, we'll post the link to the spreadsheet. I haven't had a chance to go through all of the comments yet scrolling through it. And based off what Matt Travis said in the town hall, uh, you know, they published all the comments, but they seem mostly constructive. I think the majority of them, seem helpful, which is, uh, which is good to see. So, yeah, they're all focused on, you know, like the topics that we pointed out a couple episodes ago, you know, like the, the structure of the document, um, the assessment process itself, and then things like external service providers, which is a glaring question that, that people keep bringing oh, yeah. up just for, for clarity. So, um, and oh, yeah. then in addition to the, the comments from the, the cap, um, in the town hall, um, we also got an update from Keiko, um, with regards to like training and the advancement of, of training and certifications, right? So we know that, you know, there's these provisional tags that are attached to certain roles within the ecosystem and they come with their benefits. Like obviously if you're a provisional assessor, or provisional instructor, you get to kind of um, circumvent the necessary training required to get mm -hmm. some of these certifications like CCP, CCA and, and things of that nature. Um, and so now there's deadlines attached to it. So if you are a PA or you are a PI um, or you have a provisional tag in front of um, your title right now, you have um, until the 19th of April to pass your certified CMMC professional certification test. 
And then you have until the 16th of June to do the same for the CCA, which is the certified CMMC assessor. I'm going to write that down. I got to take mine. Yeah. Just note. Yeah. I got to, I got to take my CCA for sure. You know, yeah. the holidays, it was the holidays. It's, yeah. it's only February. It's too late to say happy new year now. Right. So I feel like once, once you stop saying happy new year, uh, then that's probably the time to get back. Well, is it still Lunar New Year? I don't know. There's balloons everywhere, so I think it's yeah. still a celebration. You know what I'm saying? So I don't um, think they're the same balloons, Jacob. Maybe it's still Lunar New Year. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later, though. So, and then uh, in addition to that, in the Keiko update, they they talked about and and we've had conversations about this, and I've had many conversations with people about this three assessment rule that is attached to the CCA, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the part where you are fully, um, what, what is the term they use? The DOD, your DOD, um, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. We'll have to add it in. Suffi- yeah. It's like the sufficiency, right? Like it's yeah. the sufficiency for you to be a CCA. Um, mm-hmm. That's like your final stepping stone. The final stage boss right. is the three. After you test out, you can still test out. You can still do all that. So mm-hmm. obviously that rule, you know, it, it's got a lot of... Um, grumbling behind it and people aren't quite understanding well, it's a real to- it's a it's a real chicken and egg problem right because Correct. you need you need the three assessments in order to get the cert but then we need the assessments to start which needs the assessors and so you know even if they have a plan it's still a little clunky right even right. if there's even if there's a plan it's not an easy situation so there is a plan of proposal in place which the ab submitted to kind of provide clarity to the three assessment rule and see exactly mm-hmm. where they need to go the unfortunate part about that is, is that the p- same people that would be dedicated to kind of clearing up that plan of proposal mm-hmm. are the same people dedicated to finalizing rulemaking. And obviously that takes the precedent right now. I, yeah. right, rightfully so. Right. Yeah. So um, but what was made clear is the fact is that you can still take and test out for the CCA. You can still achieve every single mm-hmm. thing um, attached to it with the exception of those yeah, three assessments. I think, yeah, I mean, on the, on the critical path of getting to full-blown CCAs, right, if you have to go through the assessments, that's pretty far to the right. I mean, most people still need to go through CCP, and then you still have to study and take CCA. So um, there's still, you know, quite a bit of work to do to the left of that requirement, however they end up hammering it out. But, you know, the, the hope being that, you know, they do hammer it out uh, appropriately because, that you know we've talked about this before but the requirement to have to sit on real assessments in order to be qualified for the credential is unlike a lot of assessor auditor certifications that exist in um the certification ecosystem that's out there right a lot of people say you know if you get your cisa which is a wonderful cert or you get other you know iso 27001 lead auditor certs and things like that also a great cert um, there's no requirement that you have to actually sit on an assessment or multiple assessments in order to get it. So it's a trade-off, right? You're going to have arguably a more credible certification because you had to do a real assessment against the standard that you're being certified against. But, uh, you know, that puts a pretty heavy constraint on terms of how many people will go all the way through with it. How do you get that, you know, flywheel started? So it's not easy, but um, but it, it's a trade-off just like anything, right? And it can potentially be a bottleneck, obviously. Like it, it could be one of those situations where you have obviously the people that have tested out and you have the uh, enough CCAs to, to start carrying out some of the mission, but the issue comes into the requirements. The, the, and some people just for not being given the opportunity to participate in the assessments or some people just because not being fully aware of what's required of them. So I think it's a good point that the Keiko comes on yeah. and they kind of rehash this fact that you still have to do this. You still have to do that. Yeah. 
But well, and I know that our friend uh, Chandler Hall of Centaur Summit Seven partner, friend of the show, uh, will tell everybody who listens that they are actively looking for folks that want to participate in assessments. Uh, they are, you know, ready and raring to go. So if you are looking for updates uh, as the news rolls out and how that program comes together, uh, definitely reach out to those guys because, um, you know, I Chandler talks about it all the time. So I would definitely uh, direct people to him and over to our friends at Centaur. Yeah. And then, so obviously, um, there are other elements to the AB town halls that we get really excited for. And it's the questions, right? We love oh, the yeah. questions. We That's love the favorite. questions. Second, probably second only to rumor control. Uh, the yeah. questions are my favorite. Which unfortunately, Mythbusters rumor control, right, uh, was excluded from this month's oh, sure. agenda. I mean, rulemaking is, rulemaking I, takes a long time to explain. So I'll take know, that trade. It's, it's definitely no, no big deal. But there were some really great questions that we wanted to get to. Um, that were submitted during the town hall. Yeah. And the first one I'm going to ask you, and I just want you to give an explanation. I would ask you to be brief, but we know how that goes. Um, <laughs> so, um, are, are you ready? Sure. New year, new me. Here we go. New year, new you. 11 minutes from now, we'll figure yeah, out yeah. what the answer is. <laughs> are all of the DOD drawings that have distribution statements B through F automatically considered CUI and fall under CMMC guidelines? Somewhere, our client thought he read that if DOD sends the drawing and it's not marked CUI, it should not be considered CUI, even with distribution statements B through F. Okay. And well, go. first of all, I really enjoy this question from a structure standpoint because it asked the question first and then gave the background information rather than giving it a long story and then asking the question. So kudos for that. That is a great way to ask a question. Um, okay. So to the question, are all drawings marked with distribution statement B through F automatically considered CUI? Yes. Specifically, they are considered a category of CUI covered defense information. And the way that you know this is if you go to the NARA CUI registry, you go to the defense category, you click on it, and then you scroll all the way down to the authority, the law, regulation, or government-wide policy that dictates that certain information should be protected, which we now call everything that falls under that, under the umbrella of CUI. The authority that drives that, uh, that marking is DODI 5230-24, which is the DOD instruction that governs distribution statement markings on information. Distribution statement A is what people are probably most familiar with. That's the one that says cleared for public release. So every time you see slides or reports or whatever, uh, instructions, memos, and things like that, it usually is marked with distribution statement A. Distribution statement B through F, though, uh, says that this is not for public release for various reasons and has various you know caveats that come with it. And so as a result, that is something that the DOD has said this information is not for public release and needs to be protected, which is a textbook reason why it is included under the umbrella of CUI. So everybody should look for DODI 523024, which we will link to. We'll also link to the CDI entry in the NARA CUI registry, and you should see some familiar entries there. You'll see them talk about DODI 523024. You'll see them talk about DFAR 7012, so on and so forth. This is where everything stems from. 
previously, uh, DOD has made statements as as uh, as far back as I can remember. I think in 2018 at the CUI uh, Industry Day that they did at NIST he- headquarters. In the DOD's opinion, right, uh, their marking with distribution statements B through F has been occurring since the 80s. And so it is a CUI marking by another name, right? Effectively, that's how they had been marking information all along. The DOD instruction uh, information that is included in the marking itself on the distribution statement box that's stamped on the information tells you that it isn't for public release and that it needs to be protected. The CUI program came along long after they had already established this system of marking information with distribution statement B through F. So if they have to update the headers to say CUI, doesn't matter, right? In their opinion, if it's marked with distribution statements, it is covered defense information, another name for CUI from the DOD. Uh, So yes, it is CUI. That is the easiest way to know if you have CUI, is not to go look for stuff that's marked in accordance with CUI marking guidelines, because a lot of DOD programs haven't started rolling that out yet although we'll get to we'll get to a story about that a little later uh is to look for distribution statements and if you have anything with distribution statements b through f you have marked cui in the eyes of the dod now as always talk to your customer right talk to the government talk to your prime talk to whoever is sending you this information we are not lawyers we don't pretend to be lawyers right this is something that you need to have a very you know careful and in-depth conversation with with your customers, but it's easy enough to read for yourself. And just on that note, CS2 Huntsville is coming up early next month. And the great and powerful Ryan Bonner of DefCert, friend of the show, um, is giving a very in-depth explanation of how to read the CUI registry, how to find the corresponding authorities for CUI categories, and how to determine for yourself whether you are hot or cold when it comes to having CUI or not. So he definitely does the best treatment of this material that I've seen. So people should definitely check out the agenda for CS2 Huntsville, uh, which we'll link below. So yes, the short answer is yes, you have CUI. You need to talk to your customer. You need to read DODI 523024 yesterday. So agree with you 100%. But obviously, in the wild, we're starting to see news stories associated with things like this, not people assuming things like this, right? It has a distribution statement, but I don't think it's CUI, so we could just be willy-nilly with it, right? So, in the news recently, and strap in, get ready. So, there's a game. It's called War Thunder, right? It's a Mm -hmm. a video game platform, huge following, right? It's got forums. People go on the forums and talk. Three times in the past 90 days... Three times in the past 90 days, information that could easily be considered CUI, top secret, or classified has been leaked on this forum. Four, four, to settle an argument about the realism of the game, right? Not not to be like, not to be like, hey, cool, look, I worked with this, right? actually facilitate the compromise of information. It's to win an argument on the internet. And listen to these headlines. I mean, I get it. I get it. Let's just take a minute and read some of these headlines. Sure. First one. War Thunder fan says tank is inaccurate. Leaks classified military documents to prove it. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> absurd. So literally, 
this tank isn't exactly what it is. I know. I have documents that show it. Let me show you that I'm not BSing about what's going on. Let me just plaster this. Not recommended. Sure, not recommended. Pretty definitely sure that these aren't do that. U.S. based only By clear way, contractors link, on this forum. link to the articles, they do not link to classified information. Don't report us. And then the second one. War Thunder fan leaks classified military documents to win an argument about tanks. It's not a repeat. That's not a typo. This is again another, put it in the headline another instance. So that's folks are passionate about the accuracy of their, of their video games. Apparently, like back in my day, yeah. it was like, man, lag switches, and you know, like I can't jump, right. I can't crouch, I can't slide, cancel, whatever it is. Now it's like, listen, bro, that Abrams that you have right there, it's not right. I know. Let me show you. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But then you said there's also an instance where they had CUI information too, because classified information, everybody gets it, right? It's classified. It should that's it's that's no no information. It shouldn't be anywhere outside of a, a facility or a system designed to handle classified information. But then there's controlled unclassified information. It's unclassified. What's the right. big deal? It's not classified. Still has distribution limits, right? You still right. can't post on a, on a forum right. and, and be like, hey, the, here you the, go. The essence of controlled and classified information is it is not classified, but it's also not public. Right. So those two headlines are really cool. But this one, bro, takes the cake. Super cool. Are, are you ready for this? Sure. On January 18th, user Ranch Sauce 39 Sick name, bro. Sick <laughs> name. Best. On the War Thunder forums, shared scans of the operations man manual for the F-15 Eagle fighter jet. Now, okay. based off what we just said. What's the problem? And, and assume based on the question above, one could assume that the manual might have been properly labeled, so they just distributed it or whatever. Or we could assume that Ranch Sauce 39 has poorly implemented 3122, right? I, I don't think our boy Ranch Sauce is up to date on his 800 controls. So, so this operations manual has a distribution statement on it. Correct. According to the article. Correct. Okay. And so <laughs> this is wonderful because I guess if you're ever uh, looking for an example of distribution statements, if you don't go read 523024, you can just browse the war thunder forums for a while and you'll probably <laughs> see examples of, Dis DOD distribution statements on documents from War Thunder people trying to win arguments uh, on on their forum. However, the part of the article that I thought was great was people recognize the distribution statements. That's good. Yeah. In the wild, like, right? Like people on a video game forum said, hey, that's a distribution statement. It shouldn't be on this publicly accessible system. So, you know, that's wonderful. They took their they did their training. They did their CUI training. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think what the, what two things that are clear here is that not every War Thunder player is in their parents' basement, sweaty and sweatpants, eating Cheetos. Um, some uh, of them are. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. I mean, I'm terrible at War Thunder. So, you know, I can't judge. Some of them actually have real jobs that expose them to distribution statements. And they're like, hey, buddy, you're wrong. <laughs> somehow. Somehow. I mean, they're enthusiasts. Right. But I'm glad to know that there are people aware of the regulations and they are on the lookout for uh, data spillage, classified and unclassified, on the War Thunder forums. What a story. I mean, what so, a story. So it was properly labeled because obviously people pointed out the distribution statements, right? So sure. somebody obviously went against what their um, 
requirements were to, yeah. to protect the data. Yeah, ranch sauce. Right? Ranch sauce is, might might get a letter in the mail or something that uh, <clears throat> he's definitely on a list somewhere. Yeah, tell them to not do that. So yeah, now, definitely don't. <laughs> okay. so, so that segues into kind of the next topic, the, the, the next related topic, which is. Um, obviously, Congress has ordered the Pentagon as a part of the financial aid bill, right, um, to review the CUI labeling, right? And but so this argument part of, the, part of the NDAA, yeah, correct. Okay, yeah. And so um, it's the government funding bill signed by the president at the end sure. of December, and it, this is a provision in it. They need to review the use of it, and it's because Congress thinks that the government is using, uh, you know, elements or people are using this to cover up bad news, right? They don't want the news to get out they're there. Using, so they're, CUI don't... they're using CUI markings? Correct. Okay. Because they don't want the news to get out there, right? Sure. All right. So well, here's... I mean, with Ranch Sauce 99 what, or whatever on the case, uh, you know, you can mark it if you want to. He's he's putting it out there. Yeah, dude. you got to defend the F-15. It is not factually so, accurate right here. Like, this game is down the drains. <laughs> Two stars. So, so there's a provision in the NDAA that says DOD has to investigate the usage of CUI markings because people think that they're using the CUI markings to keep bad news from becoming public. 100%. So that full that, sarcasm mode engaged here, that's never happened with marking classified information ever. No one has ever done that. So, you know, no. I, I they're definitely not going to find anything. There's no way that people used the CUI, abused the CUI marking system to, you know, uh, inadvertently or purposefully uh, cover up information. So, yeah. So the way that this provision worked is that it gave the DOD 30 days to review kind of the usage of the label. And yeah, 30 days. It's a quick turnaround, huh? Um, and basically the concern was is to review it and um, the, the concern was that there's extensive use of CUI will, re will result in less transparency, accountability, yeah. and congressional oversight. Makes total sense, right? So while I am all for transparency, I think it's one of the greatest virtues there is, it's interesting to see where a line will be drawn as a part of this review and if there's one drawn at all. And kind of here's the reason why. Um, the two examples that were given was one, the Army um, putting CUI on negative test results for a um, for combat goggles coming from Microsoft, right? So they tested you know, it. You know, I saw that example, and the first thing that came to my mind is maybe they're marked CUI because they are combat goggles and not Correct. because the test results were bad. And so if the test results say it has, a, has negative results, if this were to get into the wrong hands... Right. You would know kind of elements of it, the things that's tested, the capabilities of it. Well, all sure, of it of comes. Yeah. It's, it's a tool designed to give us a competitive advantage. Right. It, it's yeah. a defensive advantage. We're going to give combat goggles. These are high speed. These do this. These do that. We're not going to go and put it on a piece of paper and then put it out there. Say, hey, it failed. By the way, here are 14 different things that we put in these combat goggles to make them effective for, for our soldiers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then, I think so, that. It's, it's one of those things, right, where, <clears throat> I mean, definitely investigate it. That's what the IG is for, for sure. But I just, my gut feeling says that it's probably marked CUI because of the nature of the goggles, sure. not because of the result of the test. But I, I mean, I could be wrong, so. And then the second example that was given was the the Navy directing the Pentagon's testing office to mark uh, CUI, the report that found the new presidential helicopter developed by Lockheed. The VH-92, it wasn't operationally uh, suitable quite yet, right? Again, Again, I mean, 
you know, go ask the questions. It's what the IG is for. But I just feel like a a a platform like the you know helicopters and goggles and like all of these systems, right, are probably going to be marked as technical information because of the nature of the system, mm-hmm. not because of you know um, uh, test results or or operational readiness issues. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I hope so. I hope that's what the IG finds. We have plenty of other examples of things being marked CUI that have no reason to be marked CUI. Uh, I saw an example the other day where somebody was telling a story about how they received a standard diagram from the user manual of a Cisco networking device that just had CUI labels slapped all over it. It's literally a scan from the user manual of a Cisco device just bloop CUI, right? So uh, th- there's definitely a, a systemic and increasing rate of overmarking of information that is not CUI as CUI. I hope that the IG spends some cycles looking into those scenarios. We've had examples of those in previous episodes. Um, obviously, if people are using it to keep it from becoming public, um, you know, anybody with a lawful purpose is able to sort of see this information. So uh, it's not like you're classifying it and compartmentalizing it and squirreling it away like you would in the classified space. So I don't know. We'll have to see. It'll be an interesting report when it comes yeah, out. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the full test results, and I, I completely agree with you. I don't think that the full test results are something that needs to be released for transparency. I think a summary of what's going on and then a need to know kind of for like if you need to understand, you need to dig deeper, sure. need to investigate this, then you get the access, whatever it may be. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, so, you know, it's interesting. Well. We'll add a link when when the CUI program, the CUI program rule was codified, right? When NARA was going through rulemaking to take the guidance in uh, the Obama executive order that directed them to stand up the program, they created the program and then went through rulemaking to make it a standing regulation. Okay. In their rulemaking, in their entries in the Federal Register, they talk about this tension there's sort of two goals of the CUI program. One is the original intent of the CUI program was to promote transparency, not to hinder transparency, because the post 9-11 commission report found out that agencies were not sharing information with each other because the markings were all different and the level, the minimum levels of protection were different from agency to agency and activity to activity. So people wouldn't share information with them. As time went on, they decided to expand that process to many other forms of information, which is what led to the CUI registry. And so they said by by having a standard set of markings and a standardized minimum level of protection in 800-171 for everybody, then you can see any type of CUI as long as you have a purpose for it, because we can sort of show that not only can we protect it, but we can understand that it is CUI. So they wanted to promote transparency by having that structure. The the problem is, is that you also need to protect the information, right? And so it's very difficult to balance those two things because you have to meet a minimum standard to protect the information uh, in order to have it shared with you. So sure. it's uh, it's an interesting excerpt that we'll link people to where they talk about, you know, how do you thread the needle here? You You want to promote transparency but you also want to protect the information and you need to balance both. So uh, it's, it's very interesting to read NARA's um, take on how they 
were able to do that. I think the the jury's still out as to whether people think they they did well, but it's a it's a hard problem. Sure. And then so now shifting gears to the next question that that, that stood out to us in, in yeah. the questions and comments from the town hall, <clears throat> it, it is won't OIRA also look at the impacts to small business. This is the big topic that has not been discussed enough. Now, I can tell you from um, the 40 minutes that Mr. Metzger was on the town hall, I must have heard impact on small business as a phrase at least 15 times. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, I do believe, and I'm going to leave this question to you, but before you get started, I do believe that this is one of the things that is leaning towards more attention needing be needs to be paid towards it and and it will happen during the review of the rule. Yeah, well, so uh so there was also a secondary question related to this, right? So it, the other question was what are the checks and balances to ensure that the negative impacts on the SMB space are appropriately mitigated. So just to clarify, the first question says what won't OIRA also look at this problem? So OIRA is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. They are a they are a uh, group of people within the Office of Management and Budget through whom all agencies must send their rules for regulatory review during the rulemaking process. So uh, the, the review of the, of the rule, of the analyses that uh, all of the, the reports and all of the uh, analysis that the agencies have to do for their rule is reviewed by this uh, group within OMB during the rulemaking process. And to your point, of the many, many, many things that you have to go through during rulemaking, one of the biggest things that you have to go through is uh, of these analyses that look at your impact on small entities, right? If it's mm -hmm. determined that your regulation will have an impact on a significant number of small entities, you have to do an analysis under the Regulatory Flexibility Act, uh, typically, which produces something called a regulatory impact analysis, not always, uh, and it is specifically an analysis that has to be done for how you will impact small businesses. What trade-offs are there for impacting small businesses? What alternatives are there to uh, having this impact on small business? Why are you picking one alternative over the other? Why are you making this decision? You're effectively, and this is back to that point about how rules are done, essentially done before they're published for public comment. They are preempting questions like, what about small businesses? What about these impacts on small businesses, right? So if you go back through old rules in the Federal Register and you control F for regulatory flexibility, it will take you to the section where they go through their analysis of the impact on small businesses and why or why not they went with certain alternatives. So yes, there will be significant um, uh, discussion about the impact on small businesses. But what we've said before is because the CMMC program is simply an assessment program, assessing requirements that are already required of small businesses, but that people weren't aware of their requirements, a lot of people equate the cost, burden, and impact of implementing requirements from other rules with complying with the CMMC program itself. The requirements in 800-171, the requirements... Uh, in DFARS 7012 are not part of the CMMC program. The CMMC program is showing up to verify that you have implemented those requirements, which are the outputs of other rules. We go into this in the video 
um, that we put out. There's a great infographic that we have in the video that shows how all of these rules and outputs of rules are interrelated. So yeah, there will be a significant amount of analysis. There has been a significant amount of analysis conducted in the 2013 rule, the 2016 rule, and the 2020 rule under the regulatory flexibility section about the impact on small businesses. And so because we have this longstanding series of answers from the government about why they're making the trade-offs that they're making. And yes, there will be impacts on small businesses. And yes, we considered many alternatives and we rejected them all for good reason. We know what the 2023 CMMC rule will say, right? Okay. Because it is carrying forward this exact thing. At CS2DC in July of last year, I gave a whole presentation on this, which was literally just going back through previous rules. And I had a I had a pop quiz, which um, you know, I think we can link to where... I put a rule or sorry, I put a public comment from an older rule up on the screen. And I said, what year was this comment submitted? Right. Because it sounds like what everybody's saying today. Right. What about small business? And what about this? And what about that? It's a comment from 2013. Right. And, the, and so we know what the answers are going to be. So, yes, they're going to look at it. But I think a lot of people are going to be surprised and upset when they get the copy paste answer from previous rules because they've already done that analysis. The only difference here is the cost of assessment, which, you know, is is not an insignificant amount of money, but it is not the total cost that people talk about when they talk about complying with CMMC because they take the cost of implementing the requirements and maintaining the requirements and the cost of assessment, and they, they lump it together. That's not what the rule is going to look at. It's just going to look at the assessment mechanism, not the requirements. Yeah, and unfortunately, this situation for a lot of organizations that are going to have to comply with the CMMC rule, the, the, the results of the CMMC rule, is that they're going to have to combine those costs, right? Because they haven't oh, done yeah. very much. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so you see... And you said this before, you say, you know, the, the financial burden that's been created by CMMC, show me what part of this financial burden is separate from the technical requirements, like you just explained. I, I mean, and, I, and this is not to lessen the fact that people have a significant amount of money that they're going to need to spend and a significant amount of time and effort that they need to dedicate to implementing their requirements in 171. What I, sure. The reason I bring it up so much is that it's critical to understand the difference between the CMMC assessment program and your existing requirements under DFAR's contract clauses that are in black and white is because if you are expecting that your public comment on the upcoming rule about the cost of the requirements is going to somehow change the CMMC program, you are mistaken because it is not the subject of the rule. This is why Jesse Salazar said that out of the 850 comments that they got on the 2020 rule, half of them were not relevant because half of them were about the requirements, not mm -hmm. about the assessment program. It's, it's this very subtle distinction. But, um, you know, we, we make it over and over again, because once you realize that the requirements are not changing, um, you know, and the requirements are, are existing, well, then you have to start coming up with a strategy for how will we wrestle with the requirements? How will we implement them? And there was an interesting article that came out last month in Production Machining about a small DOD contractor that has done just that. Yeah, so a very interesting article that kind of sheds a light into the impact that the entire program itself has on small business. From sure. start to finish, what they go through, right? A journey 
from the beginning. And they're close to the end, according to the article, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so a couple key things that, uh, to point out, like there were some quotes from the CEO. Um, we realized that if we wanted to continue to work on some of the government projects that we were already engaged with, but also possibly boost our work for the government, CMMC was going to be a really important step for us to take. So that's right. the internal realization sure. that this is not only better for us in the present, but in the future, it's going to open up more opportunities. Yeah. And why do we know that? Because the next quote is, we also recognize that a lot of small companies such as ours might not make the effort to achieve CMMC. So the certification would give us a competitive advantage. Competitive advantage, something that we've talked about a lot, right? That What's the benefits a, of getting uh, adapting it early? What's the benefits of me doing this, right? That is a very, um, that is a very cunning observation by... Jamie Ross, the CEO of Midway Swiss Turn, I, I think, you know, they're exactly right. Uh, there's a lot of companies that won't put in the uh, adequate amount of time and effort or for whatever for whatever reason. And so for those companies that do, um, it's it's pretty obvious, you know, what will happen if you have it and your competitors don't. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is not us, <laughs> you know, this is not us saying this. These are not our words, right? We're just a service provider that watches this space very closely. This is the CEO of a company that's actually doing it, actually in the space. So we'll link to that article. Uh, it's definitely very interesting. The part of the article that jumped out to me, though, um, is the fact where they, they, they talk about the implementation timeline. Because okay. in our video, right, that we talked about rulemaking and in previous videos, we tell people, that in our portfolio of working with almost a thousand of these companies, the majority of whom are small to medium sized businesses from 50 to 100 employees in size, it typically takes companies about 12 to 18 months to go from the status quo to what we would consider to be assessment ready. And that is a much, much longer timeline than people anticipate. And a lot of people go, well, you know, you, that's you guys saying that like that's that's you guys say because you're you're selling them this this transformation right. you're selling them this journey and so you dictate how long it takes but in this article they talk about how long it takes and they say it was about a one and a half to two year implementation timeline so don't you know don't take it from us take it from a small dib contractor trying to you know go through the requirements that is how long it takes to do it right and that's and that dip contractor's timeline is actually longer than what we're projecting, right? Twelve yeah. to eighteen months—that's a year to a year and a half, not a year and a half to right. two. Yeah, and so now, there's, yeah, so it definitely. I, I mean, it, it immediately popped out to me when when they were talking about how long it took. I mean, it's just, it, it's so it's not, not fun to talk about timelines without having skin in the game, right? So I want I want you to make a little wager here, right? We're sure. gonna parlay this. If my organization. I surprised Jacob. I started my own dib organization. You're more than welcome to come hang out. Okay. <laughs> um, but if my organization was starting from scratch right now, okay, mm -hmm. over under my implementation is complete before we're making finalizes. Um, are you the average DOD contractor or are you um, like a, a DOD can tractor, right? Like, are you. <laughs> Are you very motivated? That is just off the top of my head. So we'll we'll edit that one out and post. But <laughs> I like if you it. are the average company, if you are the average company, uh, based off what we have seen, uh, even if the DOD gets a proposed rule, if you have not started yet, I would say you are very unlikely to be fully ready to go by the time the rule comes out. Um, sure. However, if you are starting, and we talk about in the video, if you're starting probably Q1, 
2023 Mm -hmm. and you start in earnest and you get after it the way that Midway Swiss Turn in the article has gotten after it, then yeah, you could definitely make it for sure. It's not, this is not an impossibility, right? I mean, this isn't, we're not saying it takes one and a half, uh, you know, to two years because it's impossible. That's just, you're going through, you're having to transform your understanding of your business processes, of your data flow before you even get started in terms of implementation and shared responsibilities and just all of this stuff that comes around with it. You know, this is not a, a one to two week, you know, one time project. It, 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 it follows the way, you know, these controls follow the way that your business operates. And they ask you questions, you know, the controls do, um, about the way that your business operates that you typically haven't asked, been asked before. And so it takes time to know what the answer is. Cause a lot of times when you go through the requirements of people for the first time, you know, they haven't heard the question phrased that way. And so it just takes time. Um, but yeah, I'd say if you are the average DOD contractor that hasn't started, uh, you're probably already out of time. If it's going to be an interim final rule, which is still up in the air, as we talked about in the video, you're definitely out of time. Um, but if you are a highly motivated company that sees the writing on the wall and you're going after competitive advantage the way that the folks in the article are, then yeah, you could definitely make it for sure. And so you're telling me that no matter how motivated my company is, 72 hours is not realistic. Uh, you definitely cannot get uh, ready. You If you buy one of these solutions that tells you they're going to get you compliant in like three days, uh, you'll fa- you, you won't fail, right? This is the thing. No one's going to fail a CMMC assessment. I encourage everybody when you go back and you look at the comments on the draft cap, go read the draft cap, go through CCP training and learn about pre-assessment readiness review, Correct. right? If you are not ready for an assessment, you don't get an assessment. So if you are clearly not ready for one, you won't fail CMMC. You just won't be able to pay for an assessment. You won't even get assessed. You won't so even get a try. You don't, yeah, you don't even get a go at it, right? It's just basically, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I think personally, not tall enough I think to ride way, this ride. Right. You are yeah, like, you're, you're, before you even got done walking up to the line, they were like, you are not <clears> tall enough. Right. So I think that this is just my personal theory. I think the way that it's going to play out is there's going to be a lot of heartache and a lot of consternation and a lot of things are going to break when the CMMC program starts to roll out because most people were not early adopters like the folks at Midway Swiss Turn who are good to go and they're set up for success. And so people are going to go, there's problems, there's problems, there's problems. There's going to be an inquiry. There's going to be a DOD IG investigation. There's going to be a GAO report. There's going to be something that takes a closer look and they're going to go for the people who are ready they usually do pretty well. They don't, there's really not a very high failure rate because y- you already know what the questions on the test are and you get to write the answers. So it's really not that difficult once you start to sort of see how it works. But yeah, if you roll in and you bought a three day compliance solution 18 months ago, uh, you're, you're just, the assessment won't even kick off. So I um, can't argue yeah. that. So more stuff that came out in that midway, uh, the article about Midway Swiss Turns. I, I like that name, by the way. Yeah, just, no, it's it, a great it, name. It, it's so. clung to me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, so this um, is this is the one that, if you don't mind, this is the one that 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 jumped out to me, right? Confuses so, me as well. So we can definitely so, yeah, talk about so they, it. So the article's great. They give a bunch of recommendations. They give a bunch of stuff to look for. Definitely check it out mm-hmm. in the uh, in the links. Uh, but one of the things that they talk about, uh, this is the article speaking, is they say mind. Mind potential cloud-based bumps. Okay. So it says the foundation of CMMC, NIST 800-171, 
correct so far. They're just drawing a distinction between the two. Love it. The foundation of CMMC, NIST SP-800-171, was created when computer servers were the norm and prior to the development of cloud-based applications. Uh, okay, uh, let's see what they have to say. They say, in Midway Swiss Turns case, it never used a server and instead progressed to cloud-based alternatives such as paperless parts. Love those guys. Uh, Job Boss 2 Enterprise Resource Planning, ERPs, always a uh, complicated subject when it comes to controlling data flow in an environment, especially in manufacturing environments. Mm-hmm. So paperless parts, Job Boss 2 Enterprise Resource Software. Uh, so in that regard, having a server would have made CMMC easier to achieve, but all such software providers continue to work towards solutions to ensure CMMC compliance. Couple things, couple things. Good job drawing a distinction between the program and the requirements. Love it. Not exactly correct that 171 was created before the advent of cloud-based solutions. This was a standard that came out in 2015. It's been revised since. This is not a uh, uh, this is not a document that is unaware of cloud-based uh, solutions or architecture or cloud-based data flows. It is a pet peeve of mine when people go, "It's not aware of the cloud." It's not aware of the cloud. That is not what it's designed for, right? If you put CUI in the cloud, that system, according to DFAR 7012, needs to be equivalent to FedRAMP moderate. When you put CUI in the cloud, we are talking about FedRAMP. We are not talking about 171. The way that those two things are related is they are both derived from 853, the master catalog of all NIST controls, which standards like FedRAMP and the NIST cybersecurity framework and 800-171, they are all subsets tailored down from 853. If you're putting CUI in the cloud, if you are using cloud systems in your environment to work with CUI for whatever reason, right? You are not worried about CMMC certification. You are worried about FedRAMP. FedRAMP. Mm -hmm. Now, the question of... FedRAMP moderate equivalency and its relationship to CMMC personally should have been the easiest question for DOD to ever answer, right? The reciprocity between those two standards should be a non-issue because they are both derived from 853 and everything in FedRAMP moderate subsumes everything in the CMMC requirements, 800-171. It is a smaller Mm -hmm. subset than FedRAMP which itself is a smaller subset taken from 853. So it shouldn't. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We're waiting on the rule. We're waiting on all of the log rolling that goes on within different areas of the DOD to figure out who's equivalent to who. But under the hood, it is all the same. So, you know, they're not wrong. You definitely should be mindful of situations with the cloud. I feel like they mischaracterize 171 a little bit, not the end of the world. Cloud-based ERPs, Cloud-based software, very, very common. There's not a lot of shops anywhere in their right mind that would have on-prem servers and on-prem devices and on-prem stuff. So if you have data flows that are out into the cloud, you have other responsibilities and things you need to be aware of beyond 171 and CMMC. You're now talking about FedRAMP moderate. And to get back to rulemaking, that is not something that is stemming from CMMC. That is something that stems from your obligations in DFAR 7012. So, you know, there are subtle differences between this clause and that clause and these requirements and that program, but 
be very careful because if you roll in and uh, the assessors show up and you go, yeah, we've got CUI in the cloud everywhere and you've never heard of FedRAMP before, you're going to have a problem. So this but, whole... Yeah, just to verify, we love okay. the people at Paperless Parts. They're great. They know what's going on. They've been aware of uh, the FedRAMP CMMC thing for a long time. So, you know, no, no shade there. Those guys are great. So <clears throat> when I read this quote, I, I was a little confused, right? And, and kind of you just cleared up some of that confusion because I didn't understand, like, are they making it, um, how making an effort to comply, are they saying, are they implying that it would have been easier if they had a server? Or what I kind of thought was is that some some of my work when I was working with actual dip contractors, um, especially ones uh, in machine shops and, and whatever it may be, was actually the availability or the amount of these ERP softwares that meet the criteria, right? And I yeah. think that that may be it. So yeah, finding one and eventually, because it says they eventually progress to cloud-based solutions, right? Yeah. Um, so so maybe it was a, a, a seeking out process. A there are not a lot of ERP solutions that are FedRAMP certified. And so here's the thing, right? Is uh, a, <laughs> this is a longer conversation that we probably go into in more depth, but the sure. the 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 concession that the government made when they wrote DFAR seventy twelve in twenty sixteen was they said equivalency. They said, yeah, they said most most people in the world don't have access to FedRAMP certified solutions because those are so solutions certified for the government, especially mm -hmm. at the time that the rule was being created, twenty fourteen to twenty sixteen time, right? Mm -hmm. So they said, well, listen. Um, if you're going to put CUI in the cloud, it's supposed to be in FedRAMP certified environments, but you all don't have access to that all the time and the ecosystem's growing slowly. So at least make sure that it is equivalent to FedRAMP moderate, mm -hmm. which makes total sense. Problem is, nobody knows what that means. Because if you ask somebody with a background in NIST requirement verification, yeah, when you, yeah, it's a, it a hot button topic. If you ask somebody with a background in the, in the verification of NIST cybersecurity requirements, the equivalency between a FedRAMP certification and I'm FedRAMP moderate is you can show me all of the evidence that you've implemented these requirements in accordance with 853A. You just haven't paid a million or $2 million to go through the certification process. FedRAMP moderate equivalency is not, yeah, we're FedRAMP, right? Like you can't, like the entire reason that CMMC exists is because self-attestation doesn't work. We can't just then turn around and say, well, I put all my CUI in the cloud and the cloud service or the cloud tool self-attested to implementing a bigger set of requirements. It doesn't make any sense. So the equivalency thing is a thorny issue. But in my opinion, the two biggest failure modes, failure modes for the reason why people won't be ready for an assessment or they won't make it through their assessment are their managed service provider, their MSP, and their uh, enterprise resource planning system, their ERP, right? Mm -hmm. So MSP, ERP, by far the two biggest issues that are going to get people wrapped around the axle. So the article is definitely correct for uh, being aware of that. But, you know, we, we sort of hang on the details in terms of like how they characterize 171. But like we said, FedRAMP moderate equivalency, cloud data flows, not CMMC's problem, right? That's right. a FedRAMP problem. That's a DFAR 7012 problem. So, right. you know, I, I it's, a, it's, it's a complicated issue, man. It's a complicated issue. But I think the article does a really great job talking about how their, their journey through it, 
how they view it from their perspective as a as a as a DoD business. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's great. This is kind of um, this article and John Ellis' presentation at CS2 Tampa are kind of representations that it, it is accomplishable by organizations that are smaller. It's a lot more challenging. There are a lot more things that are presented to it, but it's not impossible. And you know, that I was, that's clear. That was a, you know, that John, uh, the presentation you're talking about is from John's presentation at CS2 Tampa. Right. Um, basically about a year ago. So, uh, and, and what he said was, we'll, we'll link to the clip, which is really good. He says that as the director of DIBCAC, the DOD's assessment team that comes out and assesses the same requirements that CMMC is designed to assess mm-hmm. in their experience of assessing companies, the company that has done the best, the best was a five person company. And so when I heard that at CS2 Tampa, I immediately thought about, you know, the questions that we talked about earlier that submitted on the town hall. What about small business? What about small business? What about small business? And then mm-hmm. you see examples like in the article from, from Midway Swiss turn here about small business. It's like there it's going to cause a separation in the small business environment. And from okay. the DOD, from the DOD's perspective, when they go out and assess it, if the best company that they ever saw go through an assessment against the requirements was the smallest company that they have ever assessed, then the arguments about impact and burden on small business in their minds, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying in their minds probably don't carry as much weight because they know that it's possible. So not a statistically uh, you know, large sample size by any means. I'm not John Ellis. This is not necessarily my opinion. I'm just saying, right, that when you make the public comment that it will crush small businesses and DOD has evidence to the contrary, and you've got these examples coming out from small businesses that are actually doing it. Um, it's not that that won't happen. It's just it's not that that's the only thing that will happen. So, you know, be aware of the larger context. But yeah, it's a good um, sure. it's a good callback to an older CS two for sure. Sure. Um, and then just to close the door on this month's town hall and the questions, right? I got one more question for you, and I want to ask it of you because obviously kind of this is your bread and butter man like this is okay, this okay. is where you thrive like this is your zone i'm in, you're, you're billy ho on uh on white men can't jump it's uh, i'm in my <laughs> zone sydney um so what discussions are occurring with nist to evaluate their timeline for updating 800 171 and what is the plan for updating the dependent relationships in cmmc so man what a question um, so, so again, we talk about this in the rulemaking video that comes out. Uh, it is less important to think about whether the CMMC rule will be interim final or proposed and the corresponding timelines that could play out than it is to think about implementation time, how long it takes you to implement the requirements and become assessment ready, and two, mm-hmm. what's going to happen with the with the revision to 800-171 requirements because mm-hmm. – we have not significantly revised 800-171 in several years, and it's due for an update. And according to Ron Ross's statements, NIST fellow, you know, the, uh, the, the great and powerful Ron Ross in charge of, you know, all of these NIST standards, said last summer that over the next 18 months, they're planning on updating and revising all the documents that pertain to what they call the CUI series. This is NIST SP 800-171 and 171A. NIST SP 800-172 and 172A, which corresponds to CMMC Level 3. Again, those requirements are not the CMMC program. 
those requirements are an independent variable that the DFARS 7012 clause points to. The DFARS 7012 clause says, if you have this information that needs protection, you have to implement the requirements that are contained in 800-171. And you have to implement the version of those requirements that are in effect at the time of your solicitation. So mm -hmm. that's great, right? The DOD created a policy the way that policy should be created. You don't have to go back and update your big policy every time there's a revision to something that it references, right? It's, it's included by reference. It is a variable. And now, now NIST has come back and said, okay, we are in charge of creating a minimum standard for government information assurance, right? Mm -hmm. What is the minimum acceptable standard for us to have acceptable assurance that our data outside of the government is being protected? Mm -hmm. So just based on feel, right? That means that 171 is probably going to get some extra stuff included, right? It's pretty unlikely that they're going to leave it the same, right? For every time that people have come out and said 171 is bad, 171 is insufficient, 171 doesn't cover this, 171 doesn't cover that, 171 doesn't take this technology or this architecture or this into consideration. Be careful what you ask for. Because if NIST takes all that feedback and they were to include every argument against 171 being sufficiently large, we're going to end up with 853, right? We're just going to like we're going to take all the things that they took out. We're going to put them right back in. So we don't want that to happen. So you know what are so this is a question submitted during the AB town hall to the AB, right? And I Correct. don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is for how much has NIST communicated to the Cyber AB about why would they though? Well, I don't know, right? I mean, the Cyber AB doesn't have any inputs into what happens with 171 because that is a government standard for government information in non-government organizations. Now, what will need to happen is that when 171 and 172 are updated, right, the CMMC program must be updated in accordance with the new standard, right? So mm -hmm. if, they update, if they add new controls to the list of requirements, then the assessment guide will need to be updated to reflect the changes in 171A and 172A, right? So 7012 points to the C, you know, to 171, 171 gets updated, the CMMC program follows behind, and then so on and so forth. As we talk about in the video, that's a spicy proposition because if the CMMC rule is an interim final rule and it comes out this summer, then early adopters of the CMMC Kool-Aid will be able to get in line for their assessments immediately. They'll get through their assessments against the current revision of 171, and they mm. won't need to worry about whatever surprises happen to be in 171 Rev 3 until they need to get recertified years from now. Okay. However, if it's a proposed rule, right, and then we don't get the rule until summer of 2024, as we explained in the video, well, that's plenty of time for 171 Rev 3 to be released as final, which we would expect sometime the end of this year, for the CMMC program uh, to catch up to those changes, and then for everybody to have to go through an assessment against 171 Rev 3. Now, the early adopters will only need to worry about the delta above where they are now, which if you've already fully implemented 171, won't be, you know, a tremendous amount, right? We're not going to probably not going to double the size of the requirements, 
But if you haven't implemented anything, it's just adding more fuel to the fire uh, in, in your situation, right? Like it's, there is, let me put it this way. There is no situation out there where there's no timeline that we're on where anyone could foresee 800-171 getting smaller, if that makes sense, right? Sure. Like there's nothing in the threat landscape. There's nothing in the way that ransomware has played out. There's nothing in the criticisms that people have levied against 800-171 knowingly or unknowingly that would suggest that NIST was like, hmm, we can probably get rid of some stuff, right? So, you know, I don't know what discussions that had, they've had uh, between NIST and the Cyber AB. Like we talked about in November when the AB had their summit, uh, uh, Victoria Pilateri from NIST, um, who is very closely involved with 800-171 and the development of the CUI series, on stage with Matt Travis of the Cyber AB. So that relationship is there. But mm-hmm. I think like most of us, you know, the AB is going to be on the outside looking in. So, you know, it's it's definitely an interesting question. It's a fun question because this is exactly what I'll be talking about at CS2 Huntsville uh, the first week in March. So uh, March 7th and 8th in Huntsville, I will be giving a presentation on uh, what I think the delta will be between the current revision of 800-171 and the upcoming revision of 800-171. There's a couple of ways that I think that we can get a ballpark idea of what those possible changes could be so that people can at least get a sense of the possible magnitude of changes. My money is on a non-zero number of new controls. There will, I think there will be at least one new control, and that is not to downplay how impactful those new controls can be, because as many people know, you might wrestle with a single control for months, depending on which control it happens to be. So they'll make some editorial changes, they'll make some administrative changes, they might make some wording changes, but I think we will see a non-zero number of new controls. And so I'll be you, talking about that at, at CS2 Huntsville for sure. You you throw non-zero out a lot. And it's true. Well, it's true it's in every case, answer, right? right? It's a safe yeah, answer. It's, a, it's it like, do you, think, do you think that it will stay exactly the same or do you think it will change at all? And I'm like, I well, I think it will you change. it won't be negative. It won't, it. it won't not change. Let's go with that. Let's just go the full double negative, right? But There will be a positive in- integer of changes associated <laughs> with. Yeah, so, exactly. So. I'm really looking forward to your presentation at CS2 Huntsville, obviously, and a, a lot more. Um, are there any in particular that you wanted to call out? Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's going to be a great event, obviously. Like, first and foremost, mm-hmm. Huntsville in the spring, you can't beat it. Rocket City, gorgeous. right? Yeah. Um, and, and so really excited about that. A good venue, the Westin, right there mm-hmm. on Bridge Street, which a lot of stuff surrounding it, a, a beautiful venue. And then event. inside a lot of knowledge being dished out. And so what are some things kind of you're looking for? We mentioned Ryan Bonner. I think the Ryan Bonner presentation on CUI identification, scoping, et cetera. I think that that is something that is a massive void in the day. Every time Ryan talks, I learn something, right? So I'll be in the front row. I'll be in the front row for sure. So I think that um, you'll have a link to the agenda. And if you've made it this far in the video, uh, we'll have a discount code for podcast listeners disguised in the description below. So, uh, we will include that so that people who are uh, podcast listeners will have discounted entry, whether it's virtual or in person. So anyways, when you get to the agenda, um, the thing that I take the most pride in and the way that CS2 is set up is the sequence of the presentations, specifically the sequence of the presentations before lunch on both days. So on the first day, we'll start with Stacey Boschjanik everybody knows and loves from the CMMC program and the DIB CS program. 
know, she's a CMMC OG from when it was still under uh, the Office of the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. So we're going to get an update from her. She is always very candid when she's speaking in person. I think at CS2DC when we had her uh, present, I think she gave her DOD spiel for like five minutes and then the rest of the time was just Q&A. So mm -hmm. direct Q&A with the people running the program on DODs for, for you know upwards of an hour. So we'll open with Stacy, and then uh, get the, uh, the, the information about what's going on. Immediately after Stacy on day one is Nick Del Rosso, who is um, uh, maybe the guy that most people don't want to see in any other aspect other than on stage at CS2. Because if he shows up at your company, that means that DibCAC has arrived and they have several questions that they would like to ask you about your implementation. But Nick is great. He's presented at CS2 in the past. He's presented on the Cyber AB town halls. He's the one that brings the data aggregated from all DibCAC assessments, which we've talked about in the past, saying these are the most common controls that we see people miss. These are the most common questions that people mess up on. These are the most common things and mistakes that people make. So mm -hmm. he is seen it all. Uh, he's you know come up through the ranks through DibCAC to now running the show. So he's definitely the, uh, the one that you'll want to uh, listen to and ask questions of immediately after Stacy, because the CMMC program assesses the requirements and the uh, most accurate information we have about how assessments of those requirements are currently going comes from DibCAC, which Nick okay. is in charge of. And then after Nick will be my presentation because the requirements are changing. And so rather than just wait around and be completely surprised, you know, can we take a look at the public comments on the pre-draft of 171 Rev 3 that were submitted? We read through all of them and aggregated them, categorized them to see what the common sentiments were. Can we look at the source material in 853, how it has changed in structure and substance over time to its most current revision? combine those two things together to try to estimate, reasonably estimate what we're working with here in terms of possible changes. And we're not okay. done with the analysis yet. I would say that based off of, you know, maybe to give people a little bit of a preview, I think it's a non-zero number. I think that number is somewhere in the neighborhood between one and 26 uh, new controls, the details of which we'll talk about in the presentation. Hopefully by the time uh, we get a little bit closer after a little bit more analysis, I'll, I'll zero in on my guess there. But I think it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of one to 26 controls. If you remember, the DOD famously under CMMC 1.0 wanted 20 new controls, the mm -hmm. Delta 20 tacked on top of 800 They also submitted many, many control suggestions in their pre-draft comments to NIST uh, for the upcoming revisions. So if you ask DOD, they want like 12 to 20 new ones. I think that range is slightly larger in terms of the possibility, but sure. that's what we're going to talk about uh, before lunch on day one. So very tight sequence of related information. But on day two, it's very interesting because uh, we're going to open a conversation between myself and Lauren Ayers of the Professional Services Council. She was a longtime contracting officer with the DOD, and contracting officers are not the most talkative bunch, especially while they still work for the department. And that's very unfortunate because they are the key center of gravity in terms of how this will look and feel and play out for 
every DOD contractor that's out there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. every, all roads lead to the contracting officer, and we just don't hear from them very much. So I think it'll be very insightful because she's no longer a DOD contracting officer. They do great work over the Professional Services Council uh, in D.C., so I'm very excited to hear her perspective from the contracting officer's role about what is what do you think this is really going to look like? What does it look like from your perspective? I mean, this is what she did for years and years. So very, very excited to sort of get that perspective because it's central to all of the conversations that go on with all the DFARS clauses, all the requirements, everything about CMMC revolves around the contracting officer. So I definitely am excited to give her a microphone and listen to what her take is on the good, the bad, the potentially ugly. That's very interesting. Immediately after that conversation with Lauren, we'll have Christoph Minerchik, the author of the In Plain English series, which are awesome. I've got it up here on my sh- on my shelf. I always learn something from Christoph's books and from his posts on LinkedIn. Contracts attorney. He has written multiple multiple books explaining how the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR, works in plain mm-hmm. English. How to negotiate government contracts in plain English. Uh, the federal acquisition system in plain English. Uh, And so he is specifically going to be talking about one of the worst and most pernicious topics that comes up, the the myth of the self-deleting clause. So a lot, a lot, a lot of companies get this problem where DFAR 7012 is supposed to be included in all DOD uh, solicitations by default. Right. Like it's supposed to go to everybody by default. You're, everyone gets 7012. So the coolest part about Christoph's session and Christoph being at the event is that uh, all in-person attendees will get a copy of his book, Negotiating Government Contracts in Plain English, uh, as a part of attending the event. So very, nice. very excited for that. I have used his books to learn a lot about the way that government contracts and federal acquisitions work. I'm not a lawyer. He is. So hear it from uh, hear it from the person himself. So that goes from learning from contract officers directly to somebody who is helping people negotiate contracts in an intelligent way, who has a, a very keen insight into how that process works. And then the final session in the morning on day two is Ryan Bonner, who we talked about earlier, who has a extremely good uh, understanding of how the CUI registry works how the authorities that constitute different CUI categories work, how to understand them, how to navigate them, and how he and his team at DefCert work with their clients in order to help people in a very similar way to what Christoph will say, uh, intelligently push back on the customers, which is what the DOD literally tells everyone to do every time. Mm-hmm. Every time, and we'll see it at CS2 Huntsville, a question comes up to Stacy or to Nick, or to John Ellis, or to Buddy Dees, or to anybody in the Pentagon related to this program about CUI, their answer is always, talk to your customer, right? Talk to your customer. So we're going to hear from the contract officer, who is often the customer. We're going to hear from Christoph Minerchik. We're going to hear from Ryan Bonner. So a very tight sequence, just like on day one, is focused on the requirements, focused on how to work with your customer, how to talk about it, how to understand it, how to know for yourself, uh, what that conversation needs to be and how it's going to be executed. Very, very excited for the agenda at CS2 Huntsville. So check out the discount code uh, below, and we'll also have a link to the event page so people can check it out. Yeah, I'm really excited um, about the event. And then obviously 
Um, it's fully loaded before lunch. And then after lunch, we one of the unique things about CS2 is the split off into the different tracks, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's more of a technical track and a more of a, an administrative managerial track where yeah. you can go where your mind's leading you, the things that you, you thirst for the knowledge for the most. Um, and, and though that part of the agenda is also jam-packed from top to bottom with, with uh, talented people. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be a great event for sure. So, um, yeah, we'll have a link to everything on there so people can check it out. And then uh, and then uh, we'll go from there. All right. So uh, as the podcast has grown, we get more and more uh, comments, uh, especially on the YouTube page for the show, which is great to see. We look at all of them. We read all of them. Uh, so uh, we love it when you guys share your thoughts, your suggestions, your ideas, your comments, your concerns, your criticism. So we see you out there. Thank you for participating. And specifically, uh, YouTube user Dominic Tenorio said, uh, given the wildly inaccurate guesstimates by the DOD regarding the size of the impacted defense industrial base and your own estimates, I have a question. I cannot fathom how there won't be a massive bottleneck with assessments by the C3 PAOs. I can only envision a multi-year phased rollout working. Yet to date, we have heard very little regarding this. Can you please address this? So yes, uh, you are correct. Uh, There will absolutely be a constraint on the number of available assessments, assessors, uh, assessing organizations that will 100% be a constraint. Uh, You are also correct that there should be a phased rollout. So originally in CMMC 1.0, there was a phased rollout from 2020 through 2025. Uh, the rumor is that uh, there will be a three-year phase rollout. So uh, we would assume somewhere like 2023 to 2026 because there's a smaller number of companies that need assessments because CMMC Level 1 no longer requires a third-party assessment to get the certification. So there would still absolutely be a phase rollout. If not for the constraint on assessments, uh, just simply on the constraint of the contract DOD contract ecosystem getting the clause inserted into new contracts and solicitations. So, yes, there will be a constraint. Yes, there should be a phase rollout. The details of the phase rollout would be in the rule. So we need the rule to come out to tell us exactly what the phase rollout will be and how it works. But that's what we've heard. Uh, we actually had a clip about this from a previous episode that talks about the constraints on assessors. 100% true. And Dom's follow-up to our, our comment back to him said, you know, I would take it a step further and say that a third major bottleneck is the managerial and technical knowledge, skills, and abilities to understand the nuances of the program within small businesses in the industrial base. And I think Dominic is absolutely correct. I think that that is 100% a constraint. So we've talked about the constraint on assessors and assessments. We've talked about the constraints on implementation, which is the one that we're the most familiar with. And as Mm -hmm. Dominic brings up, there's also a constraint just on the available knowledge and expertise out there on even understanding what's going on. So it's a great point. Yeah. So we talked about this just not even... 10 minutes ago in the episode, right? Wherein yeah. the, 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 that small CNNC, CNC shop, mm-hmm. Midway Swiss Turn, one of the things that they listed as the major constraints that they had was the lack of competency, the lack of skill needed to fully carry out the implementations. And yeah. we're going to talk later in the episode about a secure frame article where, again, this was mentioned. And this was a accumulation 
of a bunch of surveyed organizations, not just DOD organizations, but government-wide organizations that, that have regulatory requirements. Yeah. It's the part of actually having the personnel resources that have the capabilities to carry out the mission. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, yeah, that third constraint uh, that Dominic brought up in terms of just understanding what's going on, uh, you know, it's no, it's, it's no secret that NIST documents are written in a very peculiar way, right? The NIST, NIST ease, NIST language, NIST mm -hmm. phrasing is not, um, it's not exactly approachable when you first see it. And uh, knowing what they're talking about, how to interpret it, knowing what's going on, knowing how the documents are related and so on and so forth. Uh, definitely something that people will be, um, you know, confronted with if they just sort of roll in. So I yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a great point. So, all right. So uh seems like every month we have one of these to talk about. Uh, surprise, surprise. There is another alert from CISA about some uh, nefarious activity going on in the world of cybersecurity. And this one uh, close to home uh, as a, as an MSP. And also like we were talking about earlier, some of the common issues that people have, with CMMC and and their interface to their MSP. So CISA issued an alert called Protecting Against Malicious Use of Remote Monitoring and Management Software. So RMMs, Remote Monitoring and Management Software. So essentially, this the, the long story short here, we'll link to the PDF report. Uh, it was financially motivated spear phishing campaigns. Uh, tricked people into downloading legitimate remote manage uh, monitoring and management software uh, that they would then use to somehow trick and coerce people into providing financial credentials. And then they would steal those credentials and then somehow seek profit as a result. Um, so these were, and there's some examples in the write-up that are very interesting. They're help desk themed phishing emails. The domains that people were directed to looked legitimate. They look like what would be standard uh, help desk domains that the people in the email would use. Uh, I really like this report because the examples of uh, the the emails they were getting and where they were being directed, very easy to get tricked. I mean, they're, tr mm -hmm. they're trying to trick you, right? I mean, this is, you know, I think for a long time, there was sort of a stigma around clicking on stuff. They are actively trying to convince you that it's real. So yeah. it's not like a, it's not a, it's not the end of the world if they get you. That's their entire business model is tricking you into making it look as real and legitimate as possible. But the cool the cool part, right? Not condoning it, but the elegant part of leveraging this software through this spear phishing campaign is that there's no installs necessary. This is legitimate software. This is a legitimate feature of how things are supposed to work that they are writing along with, you know, they're not installing malware and like, you know, setting off a bunch of alerts and like, you know, kicking over, you know, uh, furniture and kicking doors down and making a bunch of noise and, you know, getting detected and things like that. They are just, they're literally using the software the way it was designed to in a malicious way. So, um, so yeah, it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting scenario. The CISA write-ups are always great. I think the examples and the screenshots are good to go, so people should definitely check it out. But what did you uh, what did you take away? Yeah. So, well, first, um, just a little bit more detail into yeah. for for those in the audience that may not know about remote monitoring and management software RMM, right? What it's used for. So, 
like organizations like Summit 7, right, have RMMs. The RMMs are used yeah. usually to gain insight into the performance and health and status of endpoints or devices which they have to manage. It also allows them to remotely connect and remediate some kind of findings or, or fix things and, and perform any kind of maintenance. If you, use, right? if you use an MSP, they use an RMM, right? That's, yep. that's, that's what they do. That's how and it works. Sometimes they're legit, legitimate names. Yeah. Um, and, and then sometimes they're ones that are automatically created or, or excuse me, um, created from scratch by the organization. I've come across those in, in sure. my work. Um, and so it, a couple things highlighted in this alert that, that probably people should be aware of. All right. So um, they use Screen Connect and AnyDesk. And the threat actors leveraged uh, the use of a legitimate RMM software. It can use yeah. any legitimate RMM software. So it's just not stuck and it's it's just right. not bound to um, screen connect in any desk. Yeah, they're and not then, compromising. They're not compromising that software version, right? It's just those were the software solutions that they used to conduct their their robbery here right it's just the ones that they've used thus far right, i right. guess is the best way you know to, to put it and so because um the actors can download legitimate rmm software as self-contained portable executables it allows them to bypass normal security um alerting and uh, configurations and policies that are established to actually stop malicious actors from yeah from that's progressing a problem further in your network that's yeah, a problem it, it, Completely under the radar, right? Like it's special right. ops type stuff. And, and, and again, the way it's designed to work, that's what it's supposed to do. Yep. That, yeah, so it, it doesn't trigger things when people come in right. and perform maintenance. Yeah, I'm trying to work. I'm trying to administer this endpoint here. I'm just yeah, that's so, what I'm supposed to do. But you will never get any alerts about antivirus, right. anti-malware, or anything like that that come along with the, the RMM. Um, Especially not if you're paying a legitimate MSP to do this work for you, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's how they do their job. And then so uh, a term that's used kind of in, in attacks is command and control. Mm -hmm. It's using command and taking control uh, of the, the endpoint or, or the device, which is the target. And that's used, uh, and, and they accomplish that in this particular instance, or in these instances, um, by leveraging the legitimate RMM and remote desktop software and, and just moving forward. Why, why write your own malware to do it for you if you can just trick somebody into installing something that'll do it for you? Like, work smarter, not harder, right? Right. Normally, you have to customize the malware, and this yeah. actual attack uh, stops the actor from having to customize the malware because yep. they don't have to configure the malware so it avoids detection and it avoids yep. any, it triggering any response, right? Yeah. So this allows for them to go in scot-free with minimal work. I mean, you know, obviously, yeah. there's work attached to it. Sure. But the I mean, minimal back-end work, yeah. Yeah. For sure. yeah, to yeah. stay under the radar. But it's one of those things where it's it, 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 the only difference between – RMM being used legitimately or illegitimately and turning it into malware is just the intent, right? I mean, there's not, right. they don't have to change anything. They just have to get you to, they just have to trick you. And so obviously there was, with every single one of these SIS alerts comes some mitigation recommendations uh -huh. that to yeah. obviously avoid having this happen. And uh, strangely enough, if you look at them, again, they point back to NIST 800-171. So or, Crazy. Yeah, I mean, not Good every... Not every single one of them, like implementing right. best practices for phishing emails, obviously RIP Delta 20. Um, but still, like you. Maybe, you, maybe. We'll see. It. We'll yeah. see in March when we talk about what, what might be coming back, right? Uh, I agree. Um, but it's it's vetting vendors. It's, uh, you know, making sure that you have like whitelisting and allow listing things like that in place. Mm -hmm. um, and that you are monitoring um, the ports that are attached to RMM softwares for unknown uh, unauthorized RMMs and that you have approved lists of RMMs. Awareness and, and training, right? I mean, yeah. this is, 
the list of fundamentals in 800-171 doesn't change just because you take the 171 title off and you put on the mitigations for an alert or CIS controls or this or that or this or that, right? It's yeah. uh, These are the same you know core fundamentals everywhere you go. So, Yeah, and I think one of the interesting... Um one of the examples that was listed in there is that the way that they eventually convinced the person um, that received the initial spear phishing email to go through and, and go through everything is through phone call. Like they had series of phone yeah. calls with one person and lured them. And it was a slow play also. So um, very interesting. Yeah. But the, the, the thing also to, to be aware of is that um, mentioned within this alert is the fact that not only will these threat actors have your information, um, but in order to continue to gain profit off of the, you know, their accomplishment, they're going to sell your information to other people that have other intentions with it. And it, because RMMs are so widely used by MSPs, MSPs are highly targeted because oh, yeah. what happens is, is it's, it's like a honey, it's like a, a seed, right? You yeah. plant the seed in the MSP and then you have access to all the flower petals. Yeah, you're the choke the point. MSPs, M MSPs are, I mean, there's been longstanding CISA alerts that are, you know, for years about not just not just financially motivated cyber criminals right but you know uh actors from you know nation state activity will target msps because of the fact that they have remote administrative access they have the keys of the kingdom that everybody is trying to get after in the early steps of the kill chain sitting right there so if they compromise the managed service provider, then they've jumped way ahead of all the other hard work that they have to do. And bam, they've got administrative access into the system and they're much, much closer to whatever their end goal is. So you know, your interface between your organization, and your MSP is absolutely critical from, you know, not just from a compliance perspective, but from uh, as a threat vector, legitimate, you know, security concerns, right? This is not just like a paperwork exercise. Like this is the real deal. So um, you know, it's always interesting whenever you have these CISA alerts that come out that talk specifically about those uh, those MSP issues. Yeah, and so this is the first one of this nature that's come out. Obviously, after Kasaya, yeah. there there was one that was issued, and it, it has the same mitigation recommendations because yeah. the truth is is that this is what stops it. But we still see it continually happening. Happening, right? Oh yeah. And, well, I mean, you're never gonna you're never gonna be able to put the MSP toothpaste back in the tube, right? I mean, outsourced mm -hmm. IT administration and security is usually a better business proposition for most organizations that don't have that level of in-house expertise. It's cheaper to outsource it. And so as a result, the business model, you know, the MSP market is, you know, going gangbusters out there. It's it's big business. But because of the nature of that MSP business, they are, you know, target number one for anybody that's trying to do anything nefarious from a cybersecurity perspective. So I agree. Definitely an interesting report. I think the examples and the screenshots of of the domains and the emails that people got are very, very interesting. So people should definitely check it out. Yep. All right. So in other news. Uh, DOD news in the orbit around CMMC related stuff. There were a couple of interesting reports that came out that uh, people may be interested in checking out. The first one was a DOD IG report called the evaluation of cybersecurity controls on DOD's secure unclassified network. And this was a report that looked at a network enclave that was created by a DoD component specifically to try to facilitate the sharing of unclassified information with partners and contractors and stuff like that should sound very familiar because 
one of the common things that we hear brought up a lot around CMMC is when is the DoD going to provide everybody with CUI cloud enclaves, preferably that they pay for? And I felt like this was an interesting report because in this example, um, it didn't go very well. You know, in this specific excerpt from the report that stood out to me was a quote that said, without secure funding for the enterprise requirements and full support for ATO requirements, which is the approval for a system to go operational, uh, without full support for ATO requirements and maintenance, SUNET, S-U-NET, the Secure Unclassified Network, SUNET and the mission essential activities that are enabled by SUNET are at risk of termination due to non-compliance with cybersecurity requirements. So when you dig into this report, they tried to stand up this system, this network, this enclave to facilitate a lot of the things that people would want for uh, CMMC and facilitating requirements, and it's not adequately funded, it is not adequately resourced, it is not adequately prioritized, and so does that mean that that is the case for all of DOD? No, DOD is not a monolith. However, I think that it is a example of what reality actually looks like in terms of how realistic it is that there are going to be CUI enclaves raining from the sky for uh, everyone in the industrial base to be able to leverage, um, you know, out of the box. I just don't know if that's a realistic approach because as the IG reports say in very, you know, specific situations where duty has tried that it doesn't go well. So, you know, not necessarily, you know, to say that it's never going to happen or that it couldn't happen, but it's a pretty good example of what happens when it doesn't go well. So, so if you look at it, um, obviously, I think the timeline of getting it done in time for people to comply with CMMC before rulemaking done, yeah, that's is another, done that's a good point. I think it's very far off. Um, and so one of the things whenever this turnkey solution, and I hate to, to call it that, right, because those things don't exist, right? But that's yeah. the way it was being praised. Certain people sure. were praised as this is the end-all, be-all solution for the people that are going to struggle to implement CMMC. And so... One of the questions that I've raised uh, multiple times whenever approached with this topic is that, has anyone ever really sat down and analyzed this? Like, how are they going to fund it? How are they going to deploy it? How are they going to scale it? Whatever it may be, right? Yeah. And so now, based on this report, it appears that they've sat down and they can't. Yeah. I mean, right at least now, in that right situation, now. right, with it, you know, it's important because, like I said, DOD is not a monolith. Large prime mega contractors, Lockheeds and Northrop's and Raytheon's, they are not monoliths. And so can certain programs and components and activities come up with the money and the prioritization and the resourcing and everything they need in order to make it work? Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, is it going to be a across the board thing, like a, a DOD wide, uh, you know, heel turn in order to make it happen? Probably not. I just we've seen more reports like the. SUNET findings than we have um, uh, the other way, which leads me to believe that that's probably the way that these things play out more often than not. So, sure. you know, like always, like it could happen, but, you know, until we see DOD pony up the money and the time and the resources to deal with everybody's, you know, cloud-based cybersecurity requirements for CUI, um, you know, it, you're, you're probably going to be in the, in in the other situation where it's a problem you have to deal with. And like we talked about earlier, that's a FedRAMP problem. 
right? If you're putting CUI in the cloud, it is not a CMMC problem. That's a FedRAMP problem. And so if you are a business, this is what I always tell everybody, if you are a business and your data flows are not cloud native, right? Then you have data flows outside of the cloud, which means you have CMMC things to worry about. Mm-hmm. If all of your data flows exist in the cloud, you can operate your entire business without your data leaving the cloud, then a specific cloud enclave is probably pretty viable. You know, we had uh, Daniel Acreage, our buddy here at Summit 7, give a presentation on this at CS2DC, and he sells cloud enclaves for a living. And he was like, they will not solve all of your problems if you don't meet these criteria, and we sell them. So please, like, don't don't get sold a bad deal here where people tell you, we'll put you in an enclave, it'll solve all your problems, and you won't have to worry about anything after 72 hours. So, yeah. um, you know... We'll link to Daniel's uh, presentation. We'll link to this report. We thought it was pretty interesting. Another another colossal DOD report that got released was the 412-page Director of Operational Test and Evaluation report that comes out every year. Uh, fascinating read for 412 pages, but to save people the time, um, there were uh, some things that jumped out to me. So one, the first one is, is that I think that the DOT and E report is very interesting because as you flip through it, the director of operational tests and evaluation lists all of these programs and all of these weapon systems and all of these things that the DOD is doing across all of these components and services and activities. So if you're a DOD contractor and you flip through this report and some of those sound familiar, right, then, you know, the world is a lot smaller than people think in terms of how quickly the data related to those activities and systems goes from the DOD into your shop, right? So I think it gives a pretty good holistic picture of the types of programs that DOD is working on. If you're downstream in the supply chain from the things listed in the table of contents, you know, probably think about the kinds of information that you're receiving. And like we talked about earlier, go look for those distribution statements and then you can probably start to connect the dots. But anyways, Some of the things that jumped out to me here, um, you know, I basically had three of them. The first one was the report said that DOD's abilities to assess against red teams portraying nation state adversaries remains limited due to persistent resource and personnel shortfalls. A lot of times what you hear is you'll say, you know, you'll hear people say if DOD cares about their information so much then they need to be the ones that are protecting it. And that is a great argument, right? It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that argument. It's true. It is a sound and valid argument. It's your data. You gave it to me. There's a bunch of people that want to take it. You're responsible for dealing with those people. So you should be responsible for dealing it whenever I have it, right? Mm -hmm. The reality is they don't have the resources, right? Now, I mean, the, the, this is always crazy because you talk about the DoD budget, you talk about the size of the DoD budget, you talk about all the things that DoD is great at, but it's it's just not that simple, right? So the funding and the resources are just not allocated in that way. And so the, this report is very interesting because the dot e report is talking about their ability to emulate and deal with these types of threats internal to DoD activity. Now you're talking about extending it external to the DoD, where you signed contract language that said that you knew what was going on and you were capable and blah, blah, blah. So when the rubber hits the road, I mean, they 
you know, they ought to be able to do that, right? In an ideal situation, they definitely ought to be able to do that. But pragmatically, it just doesn't look like they have the ability to do that. And so much like the cloud enclaves coming in and saving the day, I don't think there's an army of people behind the wall here at DOD who can suddenly just, you know, switch what they're doing and then, you know, do all of this technical cybersecurity work for the defense industrial base just because they happen to have those data flows flowing through their organizations. So don't necessarily look at this report or at least that first point as, um, you know, some obscure detail because when people say they need to come do it for me, you read these internal reports about why they're not doing it and they don't have the resources to do it themselves, which means they don't have the resources to do it for you. So the likelihood that they abandon their uh, need for assurance when you have their data just because they don't have the resources to do it for you is probably pretty small. So uh, just something to keep in mind in the larger context of what's going on. That's why I find these these bigger DOD reports so interesting because you can start to see some of these connections there. Yeah, and speaking of connections, obviously, like there's a lot of uh, out um, a lot of stuff from the previous report, the SUNet report that we just talked about, right? Yeah, um, that that ties into this, obviously. Um, and my biggest takeaways, one I share with you, is the limited resources of money and people. And then you mentioned yeah, it's something about both reports, right? Yeah, but you mentioned something when talking about the OTE report about an army behind the wall. But mm -hmm. in the report, it indicates that there is not an army in the wall. You even wrote about this. There isn't. It's dwindling. It's it's becoming smaller and smaller yeah. because people that work in the, the public sector are leaving for private sector gigs for numerous reasons, right? Obviously, more money in private sector, more freedom. Sure. I, what, Longer I mean, beards. Yeah, that's what, so. Um, and, and then the culture associated with it. And then one of the other things that, that really stuck out to me is that there. The contracts, the, the constraints associated with the contracts, right? The, the the DoD is in these contracts with these commercial cloud service providers, and the contract limits them to go in and properly evaluate the cloud vendor in, in order to uh, deem it sufficient to accomplish the task that's needed for. And, yep. and so, like, these are all things that have major hiccups on their internal stuff. Oh, now yeah. we're talking about, in the previous segment, external stuff you can't yeah. extend it if you don't have your own house in order you can't talk about yeah. other people's yards it's right? not like there's a you know it, it's not even necessarily an army behind the wall they don't have like a bunch of silver bullets just no. in the pentagon that they use for their problems that they can then port over to the dibs problems right i mean these are problems that span whether it's the DoD side or the dib side and yeah i mean when they talk about you know the cloud issues that they had in the ot and e report they said limited access to proprietary cloud infrastructure prevents the DoD from fully assessing the security of commercial clouds and the DoD missions that they support. The entire reason why Microsoft stood up the GCC High and GCC Enclaves was to reciprocate the demands that DoD had for access to cloud infrastructure in the event of cybersecurity incidents, which are why those requirements show up in your DFARS 7012 clause, because when their data goes into these cloud environments, just because you put it there doesn't mean that they don't want the access to that cloud uh, information system. And so if it's not FedRAMP and it's not able to reciprocate the requirements in DFARS 7012, then you are non-compliant with those requirements and they wrestle with it too. So, um, you know, like we said, big reports, small world. So there's some takeaways that you can see when you scroll through those reports um, to the conversation around CMMC, which is why I always like to bring them up 
uh, whenever they come out. Cause I just don't, you know, there's probably not a lot of people who are going to read all 412 pages, but something to be aware of. We'll put the link to it in case people are interested. Um, but yeah, so there was a third report that came out. It was not a, um, it was this not necessarily, it was not necessarily a DD report, but general Minahan had a memo and he said that his gut feeling is that by 2025, we will straight up be at war with China. Um, now I know some people have pushed back on that and, you know, armed services committees are like, well, we don't know about that. And there's people who agree. There's people who disagree. Still a pretty crazy statement for an Air Force general to say uh, we're going to be at war in like two years. Right. I think that um, the proximity to war breaking out uh, between the United States and China is um not a guarantee, but it's something that I think people talk about more and more seriously as time goes on. And that's relevant because most of the people that are dealing with CMMC are the defense industrial base. And one of the reasons why the defense industrial base is so important is the ability to produce and surge the production of weapons and weapon systems in the event of armed conflict. And so there is um, a nice tie-in to the memo from General Minahan, where he talks about the importance of operational tests and evaluation, which is the report, the DOT and the report that we just talked about. So like I said, big reports, pretty small world once you start to see how everything is connected. So people should definitely check that out. Um, but then, you know, here's a question based off of the the other report that CSIS came out with that I, I, have, I have for you. I have a quiz for you. So if war broke out uh, with China over control of Taiwan... How long do you think the U.S.'s stockpile of long-range precision munitions would last? So largest, most capable and powerful military in the history of the planet, and war breaks out over control of an island <laughs> like 60 miles away from our most capable competitor slash adversary. How long does our stockpile of primary weapon in that uh in that conflict last how long do we last it's a quiz for me right quiz for you all right so uh, i would say current stockpile maybe a few years right three years four years so you're saying war with china breaks out they invade taiwan the balloon goes up so to speak yep. and um, and then bullets start flying. We start launching long range precision munitions, taking out ships, taking out this, taking out that. And you think that we can keep up that pace for years? Yeah, I think that sounds like a reasonable, right? Like reasonably, if you're going to enter a conflict, you should be stockpiled so. for. So let's think about it. We've been in, in the war on terror since 2001. So that's, I mean, that's a 22 year conflict, mm -hmm. you know, more aggressive at times than other. I think Korea was like three years, you know, like there, it's, it's somewhere sure. between one and nine years leading up between that. So you would think that you at least have something that yeah. would cover the, the smallest mean of that, right? Well, what is it? Uh, the answer is like a week, right? It's like maybe what? a week that Wait we would last. Wait and so, yeah, it's uh, it's not years. It's days. It's and that is right? a... It's no, no, it's so CSIS did a series of war game analyses where they walked through a situation where we go to war with China over Taiwan. What happens to the existing weapons stockpile in the United States and what are the implications on the industrial base as a result? So okay. they have an excellent report that people should check out, but they also have an excellent video. I don't even think it's 10 minutes 
where they summarize the report. There's some awesome graphics. Definitely, definitely check it out because it's, wow. it's, it's, it's relevant. It's relevant, right? I mean, we talk about cybersecurity in the DIB. We talk about the assurance and security of information in the DIB, right? But at the end of the day, like this is the pointy end that the DIB is there for. And uh, you're never that far away from conversations around stockpile and capacity, surge production. Um, so, you know, it's, it's you're half a step away when you talk about not saying that that's what CMMC does. I'm just saying that it is relevant to the industrial base. So people who are listening to this, who are uh, new to the DOD space or people who are part of the industrial base, but, you know, you're just running your business and doing your thing. Definitely some interesting and amplifying information. At least check out the video. Very, very interesting stuff. Wait a minute. I got some concerns. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I mean, obviously, a week, two weeks, I, I, I just looked at the report, you know, just double check. I, I think the, the estimation was, was two weeks. Yeah, okay. well, great. Okay, we doubled it. We yeah. got two weeks. <laughs> full, we got a full fortnight. Something tells me the conflict will last longer than the stockpile that we have prepared. You know, to your point disagree. about how long Afghanistan, you know, and recent conflicts have taken, you know, as they talk about in the video and in the report, those are specifically not industrial scale conflicts, right? Like World War II was a conflict of industries, right? Like mm -hmm. they were fought via the strength of the German war machine was because of the industry of Germany, right? right. And, you know, America basically had no industrial infrastructure at the start of the war and it scaled up dramatically. And so, you know, that's how we ended up eclipsing, um, you know, our opponents here, right? We haven't fought an industrial strength engagement that required massive amounts of industrial, you know, industrial base, you know, mobilization in a really long time, uh, you know. And so, uh, at the time of at the time of this conversation, just today, you know, there was a. We'll talk about this in the next episode, but there was a long hearing in the uh, House Armed Services Committee where they were talking about the threat of the Chinese Communist Party to the United States. And the entire conversation is revolving around, you know, the capacity and capability of the industrial base. So, you know, you're 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 talking about the production of weapons. You're talking about the actual, you know, ability for the industrial base to produce. Not necessarily exactly the same thing as talking about CMMC assessments of cybersecurity requirements, but it is tangentially related. I mean, as these things move on and as the sort of rumors of war increase whether they're founded or not more and more attention will be paid to the status and the stature and the capability of the industrial base and you know cybersecurity requirements and assessments are part of that equation so it's uh something that everybody should pay attention to just for a current events perspective but even just to enrich your understanding of the context around things like CMMC and other industrial-based programs, the video does a great job of, of simplifying it. All right. So listen, <clears throat> just vibe with me for a minute, okay? Okay, sure. Yeah. So you spoke about that, uh, that, that Senate sub, excuse me, the Senate subcommittee meeting that took place today, right? Main mm -hmm. focus uh, of a lot of the conversation was uh, war with China. Well, and just to clarify, in case anybody you know wants to bring out the details, not a subcommittee meeting. House Armed Services full committee meeting. Every mm -hmm. member of the House Armed Services oh, committee. Oh yeah, that's was right. In there. 
So it was my, the whole the whole gang was there. Anyways, keep going. That's my mistake. All right. So one of the things, and you know, I obviously paid attention to it as well. Um, and one of the takeaways that I had from that is, um, and, and it kind of ties into to basically this vibe I'm about to get into. Um, prior to the U- Ukraine Russian conflict, that mm-hmm. the United States hadn't produced Stinger missiles in 20 years. Yeah. And, but we're sending, that's what we're sending, right? No, well, that we, maybe yeah, because it's it obsolete, was, right? You know, like we've probably progressed in technology and things like that. When was or the last time you did an anti, a shoulder launched anti tank missile in it's something true. the United States has been involved? Like it's, it's been a long time. But the point behind that is, is that how many other elements that would be necessary in this war are, are lagging behind? Is the first thing to think about. We don't know that. Yeah. But. What I did, what I have heard in the past couple of weeks is people, representatives in the government speaking um, with results to the strain that the UK is supplying the UK with resources has put on our supply chain, because that's where the resources are coming from. Our supply chain's making it. It's coming from our stockpile. We're sending yeah. to Ukraine to, to, to battle off Russia. Yeah, so, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good point that got brought up today. We'll talk about it more in the next episode. But they said, you know, the industrial base is being strained and the stockpiles are being strained for a armed conflict that we're not even directly involved with. Agree. And but you're it, like, <laughs> like, yeah. So when you start to think about stuff breaks out over Taiwan and we get directly involved, like those stockpiles are going to evaporate pretty quick. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And actually that's the next thing that I, I kind of want to say is that the resources are already limited, apparently, right? We're, we're already mm-hmm. strained and the supplies could be depleted even quicker if we continue to supply the Ukraine and then we're in our own conflict ourselves, right? They may mesh together because obviously we know the, the allegiance between Russia and China. I'm sure. not here to talk about geopolitical Yeah, this is not a like foreign Matthew policy Broderick. podcast, yeah. but yeah. Right. All right, so, but where it does come into play is how much of an impact would, would, be pl- would there be, right? If an element of, I don't know, let's say the DOD supply chain that's required to replenish the the reserves right what if it's compromised and it becomes inoperable because of a cyber attack right you know listen it's one of those things where it's like in if if war breaks out and people want to start shutting the lights off in Mm -hmm. the homeland here like that's a that's a real thing will you know will industrial base organizations be able to put up a fight maybe maybe not you know, probably doesn't look great if China really, you know, uh, you know, st- doesn't pull any punches. However, right. However, that this is this is this is weird gap where people go, well, when you when you elevate to talking about Russia and China, it, that is such a a chess game that is above the heads of companies in the industrial base that it doesn't matter. That's a that's mm-hmm. a fight the DOD needs to worry about. And but then the the inverse of that doesn't then justify doing nothing. Right. Like you can't be like, well, I can't go toe to toe with China, of course. So we just won't do any cybersecurity requirements at all. And so when you get when you then you look at 800 171, it's it's one of those things where it's like 800 171 is not designed to go toe to toe with China. It's designed to provide minimum assurances that you're doing something and that if something goes wrong, you can tell somebody. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 all it's designed to really do is, you know, do the basics that are recommended in every report that ever comes out about anything bad that happens in cybersecurity ever. Mm-hmm. And as a result of implementing those mitigations, you will be able to send an incident report when something bad happens. Right. And so, 
you know, they're not expecting you to be able to go toe to toe with like <laughs> nation state activity here. This, you know, in that sort of a situation, this is sort of the if you see a flash, get under your desk drill. But that's that's just not what 171 was was designed for. But okay, you know, it's, now yeah, we talk we talk about different things that may impact rule status and, and driving rule status, sure, right? Sure. And one of the things that's talked about is national security impact, especially yep. major national security impact, right? So my argument is is this technically. At what point and, and so during Bob Metzger's discussion on rulemaking, uh, one of the things that was mentioned is that for you know the previous three CMMC rules that they have uh, talked about national impact being a driving factor in getting an interim rule status, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at what point in that timeline has the potential for impact been higher as far as cyber goes? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is, you know, in the video, the rulemaking video, there's a segment in there that talks about, you know, some of, they're not all of them, but some of the arguments for an interim final rule and some of the arguments for a proposed rule. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, a debate, uh, we've talked about this before, a debate is not settled because one argument is right and one argument is wrong. That's not I how think a that's debate, an important point right there. Yeah, is that, that's, not how, that's not how a debate works. A debate works because two people or more are making true arguments and the judges have to weigh those arguments against each other. So mm-hmm. having been humble brag, having been on the varsity debate team all four years in high school, right? And one year, top 64 in the state of Texas, no big deal. Um, one of the sort of like internal games of formal debate is trying to debate about how we'll weigh the arguments mm-hmm. because the the initial stage is proving that your argument is true, not that it's right, right? So mm-hmm. once people prove that their arguments are true, then you can debate, well, when we're debating true arguments on both sides of an issue, how should we weigh them? How should we prioritize them? That's a whole nother debate. If you ask people in the DOD, the way that you would evaluate and weigh arguments is the lethality of the DOD, the lethality of the joint force, the ability to ensure that weapon systems aren't compromised when they're fielded in an Mm -hmm. armed conflict. That's how they would see and weigh these arguments. And so when you look at the ability to have assurance over this information that feeds into these weapon systems, then they might weigh the arguments for, you know, those issues higher than maybe the DIB would look at things. If you ask business owners how they would weigh those arguments, they'd go, yeah, that's true. Those are true arguments. But the the way that we ought to evaluate them is the impact on small business or the impact on innovation. So the, the mechanism that you use to weigh those arguments will change how you determine who wins the debate. And maybe which status the rule gets, right? Sure. The big question is not, we know what all the arguments are, right? We know what the arguments are, the the good things for business, the bad things for business, the good things for the DOD, the bad things for DOD, the good and bad things for innovation, and on and on and on and on. How OMB will weigh those arguments is the black box that nobody can see into, right? So, you know, there's there's lots of good and interesting and novel arguments, on all sides around how it goes. That's what makes the whole thing so interesting is debates are interesting when everyone's making valid arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the the industrial base is not wrong to say that there will be an impact on small businesses. That is 100% true, right? There will be an impact, but there also will be trade-offs if you do nothing because we will continue to undermine the effectiveness of these weapon systems. And that's also true. 
So now what do you do? Right. You can't you can't you can't stay where we are because then neither of those two things works out. So you got to know I'm on the wrong side of the fence with this, dude. But there never in that timeline has there been clearer evidence or actual evidence of cyber warfare being the appetizer leading to the kinetic main course. Right. And that's exactly what UK and Russia was. And wouldn't you think that the same strategy would be deployed by I don't know. China. Of course. Yeah. You're not wrong. Right. This is the fun part is like that, that, that argument is a hundred percent valid. And so this is what makes it such, like I said, this is what makes it so interesting is um, all these arguments for and against innovation, for and against small business, for and against lethality, you know, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. You can sort of see what the case is on both sides of the debate about, are we going to turn the screws on holding people accountable for cybersecurity requirements that provide assurance over DOD data, right? What, are we going to or not, right? Like how are sure. those arguments going to be weighed? And that's that's why the rulemaking process is so interesting to me personally, right? Because it isn't the fact that you sort of learn how rulemaking is for the sake, here, look, like, like you, don't, you don't read through, you don't read through these books on rulemaking because it's inherently interesting. You read through it because you're like, how are they going to weigh these arguments on either side of this issue? And now that we've got Russia and Ukraine at war and now that you've got, you know, more and more people, the freaking Chinese balloon, man. Like, I mean, things are happening. Things are happening in the world that cause you, you know, when we're very sort of like head down looking at the details of CMMC and like ticky tacky assessment objectives in 800-171A. You know, there is a bigger, there is a bigger geopolitical chessboard, you know, around this conversation and CMMC is a pawn on that chessboard, right? So which way we move it and how fast we move it, you know, is part of a much larger picture. So I think people will find this video and the report from CIS, CSIS very, very interesting. You you talk about how it's evolving and just in the time that we were uh, having this conversation and actually recording this podcast, North Are Korea's, we at war? Did we, did we miss no, it? No, no, not quite. But North Korea has come out and issued their own General Mike um, Minahan memo, right? Saying, <laughs> literally, like like prep for war, readiness, and, and things like that. Oh, yeah, it's, there's a lot of moving parts, and there's always going to have to be this conversation. And we'll, next month, when we get into the, um, the 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 Senate committee hearing today, I, yeah. I think that a lot of things will come to fruition. There was a lot of it wasn't even just shocking; it was just like. These people are openly stating it. One thing that we talked about, what is your biggest concern with China? Without hesitation, what was the answer? Of cyber, yeah. So we'll, yeah. we'll talk about this next time for yeah, sure. But yeah, that yeah. part, not, not to lead them, it, yeah. Was, it was, yeah, yeah sneak yeah. preview, telling, right? Bro. Go go look up the, uh, the, the hearing in the House Armed Services Committee today, uh, February 7th, when they were talking about the threat of the Chinese Communist Party to the United States. Extremely interesting conversation. Cyber came up. Uh, as a massive part of that, and therefore, you know, conversations about CMMC, as much as people sometimes don't want to admit it, they are relevant to the larger conversation. So, all right. So, one of the other things, you know, that we want to touch on this month is uh, an article that we both came across that that was just you know brushed across to us, you know, in, in passing, um, which is titled "The Seventy Compliance Stats to Know in 2022." So this was obviously published at the end of 2021, and yeah. it's just basically like 
things that you need to know about the way of the world and how things are trending in cybersecurity. And this covers across a bunch of everybody's two favorite subjects, compliance and statistics. Mine. I mean, why not? (laughs) We'll go with compliance statistics. Yeah. That's a little different. (laughs) I I like numbers. It's weird. Um, But still, this is just basically like a forecast of the the things that you should need to know, the trends, what's going to happen over the next year. Right. Or some statistics with regards to average costs of things of that nature. And so what I wanted to do is, is first and foremost, I'm going to preface this by saying you could take 2022 off of it and put 2023, and I don't think the numbers would change a bit. Sure, yeah. Okay, like I still think that things are still average, that's a, right? That's always a fun game to play, right? Public well, comments, more, f- more fun know, games. security reports, you know, vulnerabilities and findings, right? It, it, we're, we're sort of trapped on, a, on, a, on one big Ferris wheel, right? Leading risk amongst organizations. And so this polled you know, a bunch of organizations that took a lot of statistics from organizations across different um, uh, different areas, mm-hmm. which have regulatory compliance requirements, right? So okay, these are regulated CMC. industry, different industries, yeah. all regulated yeah. industries. PCI, okay. DSS, all, all of them. Just sure, any, anyone sure. that has regulatory requirements imposed on them, right? Okay. So the leading risk among these organizations was business interruption. 41% of the organizations list that as their leading risk. Okay. Reasonable. Makes sense. Including supply chain disruption. So not just their operations yeah. as in-house, them operating as an entity. Yeah. It's the supply chain, the people they depend on to make it work, right? Yeah. Followed closely by cyber incidents such as cybercrime, data breaches, and fines and penalties at 40%. 40% of the organizations have that as their top risk. So that's 81% of all these organizations polled. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I believe it. I mean, you know, business disruption, you know, number one makes total sense. Uh, right. Cyber crime being listed number three is pretty, pretty crazy. But I mean, I definitely see it, especially if they tie it in with business disruption via something like, you know, ransomware taking something down. Yeah. They, well, I mean, it was tied in with the cyber incidents. So all of those yeah. were put on umbrella breaches, fines, whatever. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Another thing that, that I kind of noticed in, in this article was 44, 44% of the firms are being asked for proof of cybersecurity as a part of their RFPs. Sound familiar, right? Yeah. Vendors are expected. Uh, vendors are expecting cybersecurity programs with dictated minimums mm-hmm. standard prior to being awarded work or, or awarding work as a part of the contract. What a burden, huh? It's not, um, you know, this is not, this is not a unique problem, right? I mean, no. it's just, we focus very specifically on the DOD space, but this problem of heavy dependence on supply chains, data flowing away from your organization into your supply chain, or you being part of that supply chain dependent on that data flow, mm-hmm. and everyone needing assurance that you have implemented acceptable minimums and proving that that's true is not unique to 800-171, DOD, and CMMC. I mean, this spans, you know, industries and sectors and regulations and regulators and people who are regulated. You know, not a unique problem whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at all. Those those numbers make total sense to me. All right. So, now, we talked about this earlier in the episode, and it's going to come up again. Now it's polling. This is actual proof data. Budget constraints on organizations are limiting personnel. So most organizations are operating either at adequate staffing levels or below. Mm-hmm. No one has extra staff lying around to do these implementations, to learn a completely new subject matter, right? Yeah. 
So this leads to 30, 34% of the organizations reporting to outsourcing some of their compliance functionality. Now, this is across a whole bunch of industries. If I were, in my experience working with the, with the organizations, I would say that in the DOD supply chain alone, that this number is upwards of 75% or greater. Oh, yeah. I mean, so we're saying know, that yeah. 75% or greater DOD organizations are dependent on external services in order Absolutely. to achieve cybersecurity. Absolutely. Well, I can't remember what it is, but, you know, we'd have to look up the statistic. I think it would be, you know, in some of the MSP reports that come out. But most small businesses utilize external providers, not mm -hmm. just because they don't have the resources, but because it's cheaper. Right. It, 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 that's the trap is that it is better business for you to use an external you know, source of expertise to manage this stuff for you. Because mm -hmm. you're never going to hire those people internally if you could even find them, right? I mean, there's massive, you know, negative unemployment in the cybersecurity industry, even with what's going on in the economy. So even if you could find people, they're still going to command, you know, a pretty penny. And you have to manage it and know what's going on. It just makes more sense to use an outsourced provider. And then what we know within the industrial base specifically, based off of things that Jesse Salazar and others have said in the past is that upwards of 75% of the overall multi-tier supply chain from the DoD is comprised of small businesses. So mm -hmm. if three quarters of the industrial base is small businesses and most small businesses use outsourced providers, then the majority of the DIB falls into that category. So when asked, management has management and the security staff have two different perspectives as the top challenges or, or, or what the top needs are, right? Okay. Management management lists the ability to, I don't know, um, handle and participate in compliance assessments, uh, okay. test controls, or implement and update policy and processes needed to maintain compliance, right? Okay. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah. Policies and processes, which what? Regulate and continuous the, the continuous action of the practices that you need to implement. yeah absolutely this doesn't even cover the technical the, the, the technological work that uh, the technical work that has to take right, place right right um so security for professionals when they're polled 67 percent of them say that the top answer of what's needed is upgrading tools they need oh, better wow. tools we need more power tim toolman taylor oh, oh, yeah oh. um and it's a, <laughs> nice callback yeah, yeah that's um that's interesting to see that disparity between um, you know, management concerns and and technical teams concerns. It's definitely interesting for sure. And what do you think's holding them up? Uh, holding both of them up, or holding up the technical teams? Holding up the technical teams, or Priorities actually both of them. them actually. Well, I'd say that I'd, I'd say they probably feel like they're uh, you know they're they're undergunned in terms of their ability to implement the requirements or upgrade and things like that because of mm -hmm. resourcing and prioritization. Mm -hmm. Management probably feels very concerned about their ability to prove their posture because that's what they're concerned about, right? If they can't mm -hmm. prove and provide adequate assurances, then they don't get the work, which means business is not going great. And that's what they're, that's what's top of mind. So I think that, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think that they are two sides of the same coin, uh, but they're coming from two different perspectives. So, so the top three things they listed, difficulties integrating the technologies, lack of expertise with the technologies, and the number of tools that's required to manage. Yeah, I mean that's a, you know that's something that gets talked about quite a bit is um, you know adding tools and adding functionality and then the corresponding overhead and technical debt that comes with you know including more and more stuff, which is you know definitely definitely a common problem. One of the main things that I praise Microsoft for is the uh, status or their standing as best in platform, right? 
Yeah. Best in flat platform. Why? Because it offers all of these holistic and integrated approaches. All these things work well together in yeah. order to achieve the same thing. You don't yeah, need you definitely don't have to multiple. cobble as much stuff together for sure. And you don't need as many subject matter experts. You don't need an MSP right. that has a whole bunch of differing um, specialities and things like that. So th it's very beneficial. Yeah. So yeah. when you start talking about this, you got to start talking about cost, right? It sounds very costly for all that stuff. Um, and so what do you think the average spend per year for an organization is uh, basically out of their revenue for compliance costs? In a regulated industry? Uh, can I give you a range or do I have to give you a number? Range. I would say that on average in a regulated industry, the average company would spend somewhere between five and eight percent managing compliance. So reported was six between six and ten percent. You're, oh. you're pretty much spot on. Yeah. Well, I mean that uh, that's that's a okay. So <laughs> that's a big number if you know that's that's a big number if you're spending nothing. Right. If right. you're spending nothing on this this situation, right? If you're spending one percent, half a percent, right? Which is some of the the old school DoD estimates for what people should be spending on this stuff. It's half a percent. Mm -hmm. If it turns out that on average in regulated industries, people are spending what did you say six to six to ten? Yeah, six to ten percent or ten thousand dollars per employee. <sighs> I mean. That makes total sense to me in terms of what is required. But when you start to think about companies that are spending nothing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's going to be a significant jump. And this is, you know, primarily what drives people to talk about issues in the contracting space when agencies use contracts as mechanisms for gaining assurance over their data. Mm -hmm. When you bid on the contract, if you didn't include that 6 to 10% in your overhead rate as an allowable cost, then you have to eat that cost. So people are staring down the barrel of, am I going to eat 6 to 10%, which they probably don't have, or mm -hmm. am I going to raise my rates 6 to 10%? And if I'm the first person to do it and do the right thing, am I going to get left high and dry because my competitors aren't doing it? You know, I remember hearing a couple people at DOD midway through last year start to bring, the, bring up the argument, talking about arguments, the argument for CMMC happening at all from the perspective of fairness. Because they were saying if we don't start to hold people accountable across the board, then the people who are doing what they're supposed to do get punished inadvertently because mm -hmm. their rates go up and then they are you know, effectively not getting the work because of their higher rate. So you mm -hmm. have to bring that program in and normalize it. Otherwise, you're screwing over the people who are doing what they're supposed to do and what you want them to do, which I think is a very interesting sort of twist on – the DOD's perspective where they sort of CMMC as fairness argument, if you will. But yeah, six to 10% is a big jump for a company that's not spending anything. Um, you know, that's a, that's a significant jump. So what do you think the averages of um, like in a non-compliance event? So when somebody's found to be not compliant with something that they're required, what do you think that the uh, average loss of revenue is in one event? Uh, this is this is fallout from being found to be in non-compliance. Correct. So this would be kind of similar uh, to like FCA. Yeah. Mm, one to two million dollars. Four million. Oh well. Okay. Wow. Okay. I mean, there might be that, some outliers that are driving that up, but it ain't. It's not fifty bucks, right? 
That's if, just the penalties. That doesn't even account into the money that is required to recover from the actual attack itself, right? So sure. whatever it's take ransom that's attached to it, um, building back up, reputation, whatever, value, whatever it is. Recovery costs were, right? That's another four and a quarter million. That's eight and a half million yeah. almost just, be, you know, dealing well, eight and a quarter. Well, million. I mean, you wonder why, you know, insurance, cyber insurance rates go up or why people, you know, don't get their policies renewed. Right. I mean, this, this mm-hmm. landscape is getting you know more and more expensive as time goes on. So, so the argument is, is that we don't want to spend six to 10% of our revenue, but the, on the other hand, if something does happen and that's a, a kind of a thought process that's common is that, well, that's if something happens, right. It's not yeah. going to attack me. I'm just a small business in the dip, Right. Only the he- most heavily targeted part of our supply chain right now. Right. But um, 68% of those companies prioritize threats according to potential cost of the business, right? Meaning reputational value, um, loss of customer data, loss of data, Which, loss of customers. Know, that's that's what they should do. You know, this is the interesting part when you talk about the intersection of DOD government data assurance requirements and the way that businesses calculate risk, mm-hmm. Right. Business businesses deciding what their risk tolerance is for their business and mm. the government deciding what their risk tolerance is for their data don't line up. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why the DOD and other agencies turn to things like regulating minimum requirements, because mm-hmm. if you leave it up to the market, then the market will fall to whatever the, you know, the the highest acceptable risk is. So the more risk you take, the more reward you might get. If I spend less money here, I can make more money there, right? Well, when it comes to spending less on security, that doesn't work for the people who are the data owners, right? Knowing what DOD knows about what's going on out there, they can't, that's too much risk for them. And so we've got this gap that we've got to bridge here. So so that's one thing, I, I like that you brought that up, right? One thing that was discussed and that I've heard in, in multiple conversations lately is um, the understanding of like that a, a contract doesn't, Let me me word this properly. When contracts are awarded, obviously, you know, there is process where they, you know, they they answer for the solicitations. They go through that and they see what the Uh answers are and and what the capabilities are. But does it go to the highest bidder or the lowest bidder? It depends. It depends. I mean, you know, famously, a lot of contracting, you know, doctrine lately, and this is something that we'll talk to Lauren about at CS2, has been you know what's known as lowest price technically acceptable rather mm-hmm. than best value. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people are getting hemmed up in that situation where the way that the contracts are evaluated are not always going to reward people for spending mm-hmm. money and being the best value. They'll reward them for being the cheapest. And so because of that system and how it's played out, which I'm no, you know, contracting expert in terms of the difference, but it's easy to see intuitively why that would be a problem if they're selecting people to do the work based off of the cheapest price and you magically have costs that are six to 10% higher out of nowhere. And they're not being told to evaluate it based off the value they're getting for that extra six to 10%. You're not Mm -hmm. getting the work. So of course people are, are perfectly in in the right to be outraged, right? You've got to get those priorities sequenced before you start to get this all figured out. Otherwise people are going to get, they're going to get jammed up. And now, do you think that these companies that are are putting in these lowest price contract bids, right? Do you think that that money that they're the difference that they are saving from the next possible bid, you know, whether it's ten, twelve million, do you think that comes from overhead or do they cut out of their profit? 
Uh, and overhead would be things like cybersecurity, paying your employees, things like that. I don't that. think they're taking it out of, I don't think they're taking lower profits. No. So of, of, the, what, of whatever profits they're making, I think that's, they're probably not taking it from there, but I don't know. Yeah. So with having that system in place like that, what you're saying is, is that we're taking the lowest profit, which is a, a glaring indicator that there is low value being placed into employee happiness and into cybersecurity practices and things like that, protection, overhead costs that are associated with it, which then would lead to possibility of a threat, both insider threat from disgruntled underpaid employees and yeah. Outsider threat. Or I mean, you, threat you end up with all yeah. kinds of feedback loops, right? I mean, yep. you end up with you, you have all these variables at play, and um, you know when going back to the argument thing, right? Uh, you can have a case for something like CMMC showing up and externally assessing requirements within organizations, and all of the arguments can line up in the way that you evaluate them to say, yeah, we should do that. But mm -hmm. then ultimately, it comes down to how are you going to sequence it? Because if you just toss it over the wall into the current DoD contracting ecosystem, you're going to break a lot of stuff mm -hmm. because not all the contract officers are on the same page and not all the programs are on the same page and not all the way that the contracts are selected are on the same page and this and that and this and that. There's a lot of things that have to get ironed out, but as things accelerate and as the case for getting assurance over the data gets stronger and stronger, it increases the odds that uh, those things are going to slam into each other rather than getting ironed out beforehand. So sure. it's just you know another thing to keep keep your eye on. I mean, all those stats are you know all those stats are super interesting from the compliance stats. There was another report, the World Economic Forum released their cybersecurity outlook for 2023. Very interesting document. A lot of the World Economic Forum documents on like risk perception, cybersecurity outlook. They're all very interesting, and uh, the one that jumped out to me. Uh, sort of related to the stats that you had um, was the uh, perception from surveyed uh, companies and security executives around their perception of regulation and regulatory enforcement. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said that a large increase in cyber incidents related fines, like you mentioned, investigations and engagements between policymakers and the private sector has elevated the perception of regulations as a critical influence an organization's cyber resilience. So the increase and prevalence of regulations and the enforcement of those regulations are a driver in companies taking their cyber posture, their cyber resilience, their cybersecurity more seriously. And the part that jumped out specifically was where they said that business and cyber leaders also support effective enforcement of regulatory requirements. 76% of business leaders and 70% of cyber leaders agreed that further enforcement would lead to an increase in their organization's cyber resilience. So you're talking people getting surveyed at the level of this report, you know, business leaders on a, on a, on a, on a large scale, cybersecurity leaders generally are sort of looking at the wave of regulation and regulatory enforcement as something that furthers their cybersecurity resilience rather than harms it. So mm -hmm. yeah, just another sort of interesting report that I think people should skim through to sort of uh, round out their understanding of CMMC as a regulatory enforcement mechanism within the larger context of their regulatory and enforcement landscape, right? So some of the things that we hear about 
inside the debate around CMMC specifically can sometimes uh, either make more or less sense when you start to see some of the information surrounding the debate internal to CMMC. So, sure, you know, just to just to wrap up here. So in January, there were a couple things that came out that are are relevant to this larger discussion around um, cybersecurity regulation. So one, uh, Jim Dempsey is a uh, uh, a lecturer at the Berkeley School of Law. He has an awesome video that came out that it um, is really good. Yeah, it, it basically gives a very comprehensive overview of the state of cybersecurity regulation in the United States. It goes through a bunch of the hard questions and conundrums that are facing the evolution and rollout of cybersecurity regulation in the U.S., including examples around 800-171 and DOD's approach, along with uh, examples from other agencies and other sectors. So if you're looking for a very sort of holistic overview of what's going on, definitely check out uh, that video for sure. Also, um, you know, a standard that gets a little less uh, play in the discussion around CMMC, but is still relevant because it's derived from the core document 853 is the NIST cybersecurity framework. So, <laughs> the NIST cybersecurity framework was originally designed as a uh, framework for critical infrastructure uh, organizations. It's purely voluntary. It's really just a riff on the underlying detail of NIST SP 853. It's much more approachable. It's much easier to understand, uh, but it is just sort of a high level abstraction of 853. The big news is that NIST is currently in the middle of revising it. So everybody loves CMMC 2.0. Everybody will love CSF 2.0. Uh, the current timeline for that is that the final version of CSF 2.0 should be out uh, the end of 2024. They're in the middle of that revision cycle. They recently released a concept paper that outlines uh, their their sort of planned changes and, and the, uh, the feedback they've had from industry so far. So if you're interested, um, definitely check that out. It's not, you know, a replacement for CMMC uh, necessarily, but it is something, especially if you're a practitioner listening to this podcast that you should be familiar with. Uh, under the hood, they are uh, not that different uh, in, you know, in terms of the, the actual controls and requirements, even if how they play out uh, above the waterline here uh, makes them seem very different. So definitely something for people to check out. And then lastly, we had a couple articles um, that were uh, put out that were sort of predictions around the way that the regulatory landscape will play out. And I just found this very interesting because in a previous episode, we had talked about the CISA CPGs, the uh, cybersecurity goals that mm -hmm. they came out with, which really when you when you hear CISA talk about it is their riff on the NIST cybersecurity framework. So, um, you know, it's just something to uh, read up on if you're curious. A lot of times what we hear, including criticisms around CMMC and 800-171, is that they're too prescriptive. They're too prescriptive. They're too detailed. And that instead, they need to be outcomes. They need to be a list of goals that people should achieve. And as it turns out, as we'll talk about in CS2 Huntsville in my session, that is what 800-171 is. Therefore, that is what CMMC is. It is a list of goals. It's just written in a particular way <clears throat> that isn't very approachable. Um, and so when you hear people say, we want to focus on outcomes, you want to focus on outcomes, you're not really going to be changing 800-171 language all that much. Uh, and so I feel like that is 
a very common argument that comes up in the overall regulatory conversation. And I feel like there's just, there's no there there, as people might say, changing the way that you phrase and describe goals around the fundamentals that are in 171, CSF, CIS, like you can, you can riff on this all day long and change how you describe them. You, there's only so many ways to describe basic access control. There's only so many ways to describe configuration management. There's only so many ways to describe MFA, right? There's just, there's, there is a, a limited number of ways of, of moving the, the coconut shells around before you realize that we, we have to go into more detail. So there's just a couple articles that we'll include there at the end for people's uh, reading and enrichment. Uh, let us know what you think. It's just one of those common criticisms that comes up in the CMMC conversation that um, I feel like people might find interesting to read other takes on. No doubt. So there you go, man. Quite the month. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, here for the rest of February. And then I'll see you in Huntsville. Yeah, see you in Huntsville, buddy. All right, man. Take it easy.